It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. An emotional reckoning. This time I stopped talking so that you wouldn't interrupt me because I knew you were going to do it again. Yes. <laughs> You're training me. Anyway, I'm Mark. I'm Ben. And uh, we still have uh, Clay and Danny as our amazing guests. Hello. Hello. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, so. All right, let's just get right into it. We don't need to explain to these people no, what Moby no. Dick of musical reckoning go, is. Go back to previous previous episodes start there this will make less sense than jumping in in the middle of the book as i think we said last time yeah so oh, yeah, go the uh, cabin yep sorry i was gonna say go back a bit and you'll get to hear us talk about stand-up for an hour <laughs> oh, <laughs> not even good stand-up no oh boy <sighs> okay yeah the so the cabin the cabin so <sighs> do you want me to or like, just um, describe, just it describe what happens in the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, feel free. Just tell them what the song is. Yeah, so the cabin is just a setting of uh, something that occurs in the novel, but is not the chapter, the cabin, uh, in, or at least I don't think it is. I think the chapter that it is is called something like Starbuck and Ahab in the cabin. Yeah, it's, um, Starbuck goes to Ahab and says, hey, one of our barrels of oil has sprung a leak. It's unclear how much oil we're losing, so we need to drop the sea anchor, stop sailing, stop hunting whales long enough to, uh, go through and find out where that leak is and stopper it up and make sure nothing else is leaking, because otherwise we're going to lose all of the oil that we are theoretically sailing for. And Ahab says, that's not what we're sailing for. <laughs> Keep yeah. going. We're, we're hunting Moby Dick. And Starbuck, um, you know, insists, look, what would the owners say? We need to, uh, we need to have this oil. That's the whole point of the, the, um, of the voyage. And Ahab grabs a musket from the rack and threatens him with it. Uh, Starbuck pleads, he insists he's not actually doing a mutiny, he's just, uh, he's just worried that what the crew will think, what the owners will think, that things will go to hell if they don't stop and deal with this. And ultimately, Ahab, though dismissive of Starbuck, assents to this and says there's good reason to that, and, Ahab, and Starbuck flees back up to the deck. Uh, and it's more or less just how things go in the novel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's... That's generally the cabin. Oh, I'm, I'm curious about how they deal with like the the gun in the staging. Like, is there just do they just roll a rack full of rifles on for this particular sequence? I can't remember if it was a rifle. It might have been a pistol. Mm. Just for it was just easier. It was very... <laughs> yeah, that. Like it was definitely just one gun. I do not remember yeah. a rack of them. It was just no. And I, I think it was just the two of them on stage. Like, I... Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, n- nothing really memorable or impressive about how this scene was happening. 
This is an adaptation of this for a play. There is no music in this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's weird that this is on Genius. I mean, I guess yeah, because yeah. I, I can only imagine that the reason this is on Genius is that within the show itself, this was categorized as a track mm-hmm. or as a as a song or whatever. But it's, it, it, yeah, I don't, it, it's not sung, <laughs> I don't think, so. No, it's um, all spoken. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's spoken, and it's very, uh, it's very straightforward. It's a dramatic moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is, this is just this. This thing? This little conflict. I Really, I think this is just basically set up for the next song. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's basically true. <sighs> Which, in some ways, is, is true in the novel, too. Um, not that... Like, I think this is, like, an important plot moment in the novel, but it's an important plot moment because of the 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 move that it makes in the long-building conflict between Starbuck and Ahab. Mm-hmm. So, uh, do we want to just go right on, then, to Dusk, the next song? Yes. Yeah, mostly yeah. The, the cabin is very much just a scene that's, like, it exists, and that's it. No. Yeah. yeah. Like you, you, you. It's useful, I think, to have this, uh, to have them have their overt conflict on stage, so that the next song makes sense. Yeah, this um, this sequence seems very much in line with again that that maximum that maxim that we've discussed before of how in normal or at least in like a Disney musical uh. Uh, speech and music fit together because this is very much you have this personal confrontation then starbuck goes off and has emotions through music Mm -hmm. yeah which if that were a thing that were present structurally in the rest of the musical would be cooler than it is because (laughs) it i i feel like it doesn't because previously moments of speaking haven't necessarily worked that way you get this sort of uh ambiguity about which two of these is supposed to be like emphasized right yeah mm-hmm. at least that's that's uh, my thought on it i have to say the next song this dusk song i'm glad yeah. there's a lead up because i think dusk is actually one of the better songs in this yeah that's yeah. fair it's um, also really really wild because it's a torch yeah. song <laughs> yeah. yeah so <laughs> like the thing is, oh. we should maybe define what a torch song yes. is. In case I was going. Aren't familiar. I was going to ask you too because I'm one of the people who's not okay. familiar with what I a torch can, song um, is. So a torch song is a like, love song specifically about an unrequited or lost love, um, either where one party's oblivious or the other one's moved on, or there's just something affecting the relationship. It comes from the saying mm-hmm. to carry a torch for someone, which is you're keeping a, a flame. You know, you're carrying this torch. Of love, but you're the only one carrying it. It's big in musicals. They're normally kind of jazzy, which this one was. One you'll know definitely on my own is like classic oh, musical yeah. torch song. Mm-hmm. They're very much a lot in the realm of I want ish, except there's the lack of that forward motion and more just, you know, it's well, I know this isn't necessarily gonna work, but I sure hope that. You know, I'm, I'll pretend that he's beside me, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And the thing that was really striking to me about this song is that, like, it is a torch song, but it's also, like, 
doing this specific thing, which also has a big history in musical theater of like, mm-hmm. I mean, it has the vibes of a woman talking about like a relationship she's in with a, a man who treats her badly mm-hmm. and like, you know, I mean. But she still loves him. Yeah, she's she loves him, him. And like his his cruelty is how she knows that he loves her almost. Yeah. Um, it's like. like <laughs> it, it directly like gender is that whole dynamic just like in the part where it says my soul is more than matched she's beaten blue and black like the soul as in being referred to the feminine yeah Yeah, which the wild thing is okay the the feminine gendering of the soul that's in the original yes Um, probably was the inspiration for this but the phrase beaten blue and black is not and so that's an addition what, what 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 this is doing i think is taking the gendering that is already there in the novel and that is interesting the idea that the soul is feminine the idea and that specific- comes out uh, up a lot. Like yeah. the, the novel consistently uses what I think is not a super unusual uh, framing of the soul as feminine, even when it's you know speaking about Ahab or Starbuck or Ishmael. Yeah, but th- that's an interesting thing worthy of discussion yep, in the yep. book. Then the the musical is taking that and explicitly going, okay, let's make this a torch song of a woman mm. singing about like her abusive boyfriend. <laughs> Husband, I think. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. yeah, husband, you're right, actually. Um, like, that's that's what this song is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the um, the Genius Annotations has the quotation from the novel, which is, My soul is more than matched, she's overmanned, and by a madman, insufferable sting that sanity should ground arms on such a field. And this, like, the tension for Starbuck here is both that he is personally, like, Ahab's magnet is at his brain to use a different metaphor from the book. He's being like overpowered with this like energy of Ahab's, you know, hatred and vengeance, but also that Starbuck really thinks that it should be possible for sanity and Christian virtue and all the things he knows are true and right, uh, you know, financial concerns and the ownership of the boat, those should be able to change Ahab's mind or at least convince the crew to side with Starbuck, and they're not. Insanity wins the day argumentatively every time. I could fix him about Ahab. Yeah, Yeah, I could fix him. I could make him worse. Which is the read that this song takes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested, or at least I think there's a lot to this decision for me because I'm pretty sure that, you know, the casting intent with Starbuck is someone ultimately, like, female presenting, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so it's it just, interesting just that... With... Sorry, just as with the other two mates. Yeah, yeah, oh, just as with the other two mates. I think it's worthy of mention, Yeah. And it's interesting that that is going hand in hand with this explicitly making it or making it a lot more romantic using the like musical grammar of a romantic song fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think I don't know how I. It's it's one of those things where I like the song in a vacuum. I think it's a very it's mm. a competently written torch song and it's mm-hmm. one of the few songs that I listened to and was like, "Oh, that's a song from a musical." <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh. And it's also like you were saying it's very appropriate. First you have this confrontation where Starbuck is very much not able to fully express his emotions. And then we go into this, which is the expressing expressing of those emotions, which is mm-hmm. again very 
competent musical writing. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But it's only achieved because we've now, like, it's it's an interesting thing, I guess, that this is only achieved by sort of going the most straightforward heteronormative yeah. way with, yeah. the, you know, it's like, it, I've recast this character to be so played that I can, by a woman. Yeah, use or, this gendering. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I... I'm unsure how I feel about that, I think, because it's sort of a... Yeah. It feels a bit like at least one step forward, one step back, if not one step forward, two steps back there a bit. <laughs> it it feels very squicky, and I feel like the racial element yeah. adds to the squick. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because as we yeah. said, yeah. Starbucks' actor is black, and, you know, yes. Ahab is one of the few just, like, white guys in this whole thing, so it's like, ah, yes a relationship between mm-hmm. a white dude and a female presenting black person and it's uh it, it changes the mm-hmm. whole thing and like i i also i i know we we discussed this but i mean starbucks actor uses uh any pronouns right um, yeah yeah so it just uh which could mean a lot of things but a a small part of me is kind of believing in the fundamental m- I don't want to say misunderstanding. I'm trying to find a way to phrase this, but sort of like ignoring just like, ah, yes, you you may not be cis, but I'm using you in this cis role. Mm-hmm. And I and, and this is all speculation, mostly like as an like assigned female at birth, non-binary person, non-binary trans mask person. It's sort of there's very much a willingness to ignore that, you know, mm. the yeah. the what it, like ignore your gender in favor of what's very easily seen in you. The presentation, the, the visibility, pres- yeah. exactly. Yeah. The, and uh, and and again, like I said, very much speculation, but it's taking advantage of that. It's very much using Starbucks actor as a black woman. You know? yes. Yeah, I think that's undeniable in terms of how this is staged, how this is structured. Yeah, I, I basically agree with everything you just said, Danny. Um, also speaking as a <laughs> non-binary transmasculine person, that like, I, I I do not think that this musical is using Star Busby as a non-binary mm-hmm. person, as a transgender person, um, or just in general as anything other than a woman playing mm-hmm. the role of a man and therefore kind of turning that male role into a woman role like that's mm-hmm. that's what the musical is presenting i think yeah exactly. uh, it's and yeah. uh it's 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 frustrating to me on on a gender level it's also frustrating to me on a level of queerness because mm-hmm. i do think there is a fascinating mm-hmm. and complicated and in a certain sense homoerotic relationship between Ahab and Starbuck because because there is this bond between them that Starbuck can't break, right? Yeah. Um because but mm-hmm. that bond is like a totally the the thing the thing that I think is going on here is because the musical is not really interested in establishing the kind of um the social life of a whale ship. The social life of a whale ship, the law of the sea, yeah. the idea of what mutiny means. Since it's not interested in doing those things but it needs us to understand that there is, like, this bond between Starbuck and Ahab that it would require basically, like, going against every kind of rule of how society is supposed yeah. to function for Starbuck to break that bond and to go against Ahab. It just kind of has to uh, put, like, abusive marriage 
in mm-hmm. the place of the relationship of, between of a, captain and first of mate. Of abusive captaincy. Exactly. Like, one thing that gets uh, established early on in the novel is that Ahab is a, I mean, at least right now, he's a, he's always been called Old Thunder. He's this, like, he's known to be a harsh captain, but a very, like, capable one. And his crew hold him in kind of awe. And in the course of this voyage, he's much harsher and, like, less jovial even than before. He's, you know, he's lost a leg. He's become embittered in this deep way. And, you know, he has this relationship where he'll pull a gun on his first mate for giving him good advice in a strictly, like, standard sense. And while he ultimately goes with that advice, there's still this sense of Ahab is not acting in the way that a captain should, except to the degree that it gets him what he wants. There's a lot of discussion of what are Ahab's motives and still following the uh, sort of the rules of the sea, even though he's sort of upended order. An example of how he upends order that we didn't touch on, but I think is is present in the musical. But again, because you don't know what a whale ship should be like, it's not clear, and whereas in Moby Dick, the narration and the structure and also the assumptions of the time make this more present, Ahab has the mates act as the, like, cup-bearers to the harpooners during the scene of the swearing of the oath. And the result is that he's explicitly putting this, like, non-Christian, non-white, like, vitality and ferociousness above the, like, uh, white Christian propriety represented by Starbuck and uh, and the mates. And he's also, like, just literally kind of reversing the chain of command. Like, yes. Like, the mates are supposed to be the people who, like, serve under the captain and who order everyone else around. And the, the harpooners are supposed to be there. Like, the reason it's called knights and squires is the harpooners are the squires and the uh, mates are the knights. And Ahab inverts this by making the harpooners his lancers, his knights, and making the mates literally be their cupbearers, their squires. So all of those sort of fundamental logics of command and structure on a whale ship, I don't think, it doesn't sound like any of that is really discussed in the musical or really visibly, like, intensified in the musical, which again means that they have to go to a very different visual and stylistic logic to explain why Starbuck has this particular relationship with Ahab. Yeah. And I do think, I I would genuinely be very interested in a musical that leaned on, like, romantic or erotic overtones, or whatever, leaned on that element of the Ahab-Starbuck relationship, because, like, there's a huge amount of passion and drama and, like, pathos there. There's this thing where Starbuck desperately wants something from Ahab. And Ahab desperately wants something from Starbuck. Um, we're going to see this, yeah, we'll see more later, this later in this show in, in, in the symphony, um, a track that's, I don't, that's in like the latter part of part four. So we probably won't talk about that yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I want to kind of flag that as like, that's another place where this relationship comes up. Yeah. And like, yeah. Um, the idea of a Starbuck torch song is is one that on some level I really like, but but in a in a in a version of Moby Dick where we don't really know what mutiny means, um and especially in a version of Moby Dick where we don't get any adaptation of what I would consider to actually be the climax of that relationship, which is a chapter titled The Musket. No, we do. That appears in the uh that appears in the sextet. 
Wait a minute, what? Yeah, Starbuck talks about that idea in the sextant. Oh, yes, yes. No, you're, you're right, you're right, you're right. We will get that. It's just that it's going to be in this huge muddle of everything else such that I'm, I'm curious how that was staged. But we do, there is, it does seem to be gesturing towards that, just not in a way that really comes out in the songs. As yes. Clay keeps saying, these aren't musical songs. Yeah, no, you're you're totally right. Starbuck being like, should I kill Ahab does happen in Sextet. Mm-hmm. It's just that I didn't remember it because everything else is also happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, but, I, but I agree that there's, th- this song, it's got something going on. Um, I would have loved this. I think that if you had cast Starbuck as someone who would come across to the audience as male, or masculine um so and and i think there are a range of like real world sort of gender uh there are people within a wide range of real world like like actual actor genders that's what i'm trying to say um where you could have made that happen um because it's not like uh men or people who are sort of understood on stage as men have never sung torch songs in the history of musical theater right Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. So that that I think would have been a good way to go with it. That that would have, um, y- you could have had the the drama and and the way of kind of heightening the sense of of romance of it, without the part where you've suddenly made it extremely heterosexual. Mm-hmm. I think. Wait. When, oh. oh, sorry. Danny, you go first. Okay. I'm gonna uh, talk a while. No, really. it, it's just it's it, it makes it even more interesting just because the other like homoerotic red relationship in this musical is the Ishmael Queequeg stuff, which as we discussed mm-hmm. is very you know has been watered down and exaggerated in a very specific way that makes it mm-hmm. you know removes any depth and actual interest. Um, that that was yeah. there, and mm-hmm. yet the one with the torch song and the one that's supposed to be, you know, the the most dramatic relationship here is kind of supposed to be presented as heterosexual. It's it's uh like a literal version of that classic internet argument, just like oh, you would see this as explicitly romantic if these two actors were cishet. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that is a good way of framing it, which is that it's definitely like, well. We've got this, you know, very easy musical theater logic, and that's very gendered. Ah, we can just fit it in right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's taking the easy way out in a in a very in a way that makes it weird. And there's also some weird stuff in the later lyrics as they get into this part about something has tied me to this man. Where I'm just going to very briefly mention this before I know Clay wanted to say something. It's really weird to me that this is tied me to this man, and we didn't have any idea of lifelines or life ropes, which is something that shows up in the musical, I mean, in the novel. But we also don't have the other easy thing, which is a harpoon line, which ties you to a white whale. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's just not there. It's just the idea of rope. I'm mad. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) But yeah, click. I think what you were saying with the... I admittedly have a bunch... I know a good amount about these command structures because i was really into mutiny and the bounty when i was Mm -hmm. in middle school Um, hell yeah (laughs) um but i'm realizing now that i think the casting is a big thing here not only because i really agree with the casting someone who can be read as you know 
male on stage. This, but also the way it casts it sets up a very strict racial and gender hierarchy on the ship with the acting and mm -hmm. the way it's cast puts Starbuck in that because you know it's Ahab is a white man is the only white man yeah. on board and it puts Starbuck fully alongside Stubb and Flask mm -hmm. and so it's difficult to kind of like this is the first time where you're like oh wait Starbuck isn't just like Stubb or Flask who are cartoon people. Um, yeah. yeah. Eventually, yeah. who will be racist next song. But they're racist <laughs> oh, yeah. cartoon people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wonder if that's a weakness of this... We've talked a lot about this casting and how it sort of... is strange and has some weird nuances. Like, like with... Um, or areas where it seems like the... Areas where it does seem like in Fidala's thing, you know, he's talking about mm -hmm. like, well, you've got every marginalized group and sometimes it feels like that is a bit too, um, a bit more like revealing than I think they meant it to be. Um, yeah, it becomes the organizing logic for the show in a really poorly designed way, mm -hmm. whereas like, you know, diverse casting Moby Dick does not have to be like that, but they draw such attention to it. They focus in on, look how we've cast it. This is how you interpret the, the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like this could also be fixed by admittedly not having Ahab be the only white man on yeah. stage. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you could also fix this by giving up that bit of, I think, ultimately kind of like milk toast casting commentary. Yeah. Because it just makes it so blatantly obvious that, I mean, Malloy wants us to read Ahab as sort of the most villainous figure on this ship, because as mm -hmm. we know, he wants to draw so much attention to like, oh, whiteness, bad. And so it's like, look at this only one white person on the ship. Oh my God, I wonder what I think you should interpret this as. Yeah, and I, I really want to say, I think that I, I really like a lot of uh, Star Busby's performance here. I, mm -hmm. I want to oh, make yeah. that clear that oh, I really like yeah. Oh, yeah. Star Busby oh. is trying so hard. Um, so I really don't want this. I want this to be basically, I'm saying that one of the two of them should have been cast differently or the way the thing should have been organized. But I, I really don't want this to be like, oh, I'm saying Star Busby's oh, the, no, no. the opposite of the case here. But I think that if you'd had either if the cross casting of race and the idea that, no, no, these are the, the mates are white men was more believable in terms of how the musical thinks about itself and it really was trying to i don't know it was trying to just be you know quote unquote race blind because it is fiction we can just do that or if it was you know in other ways making sure that that still functioned rather than like a jokey line in the fedala thing about how did you catch that the mates are white men it's like yeah but you're not using them that way in the way you're talking about the thing starbuck in particular could easily easily be used in the framework of this is america for white liberalism that really thinks of itself as very virtuous thinks of itself as very like um 
you know, competent and helpful and is trying to make sure that everything, you know, minimize suffering and so on, but is still ultimately unable to answer to the mm-hmm. zealous monomaniacism of Ahab because that's the role he plays in the novel. He has all of these sort of traditional virtues that the readership is expected to agree with. He's very Christian but uh, also very, you know, industrious. He's brave enough to face any kind of whale, but only as long as it's in the pursuit of profit. He's the one who's telling Ahab this bizarre, you know, it's just a whale is Starbucks line. And it's like his mm-hmm. basic claim. So you're supposed to be constantly kind of sympathizing with Starbuck and also feeling a certain degree of not necessarily contempt, but, like, Starbuck is repeatedly failing to overcome these barriers to action. He's almost like a Hamlet. And you can, you mm-hmm. he has a soliloquy in the musket that is very Hamlet-y. And that's great. That's a huge part of why Starbuck is so compelling. But by this torch song, this way of operating race and gender in these songs and this relationship takes away that way in which uh, he represents, like, the... Mo- the both kind of conservative, small C conservative ideals of the whaling community and the like, you know, Amer- the ideal American man in certain ways, and the way that that fails in the face of Ahab, that could be a really interesting and cutting and frankly well-developed political commentary for this story, for trying to turn the Pequod into America in that very blatant way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that is uh, one of the things that is kind of missing from this characterization of Starbuck um, and the sort of understanding of whaling generally, mm-hmm. and and I think this kind of ties into the torch song thing. Um, like, I think one of the things that makes this song go and like this kind of type of ah, he's so bad, but I love him so much and I can't leave him thing go is. A certain sense that the the speaker in that type of song, Starbuck, the speaker in this song, just, like, cannot do anything because that is, like, that that is just, like, what is true. Like, I would say under, in, in a kind of standard context of, of this, like, usual gender dynamic, it's like, well, women... Women, are passive. Yeah, women are passive. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the, the the idea that a woman can't leave a man no matter how badly he treats her, like, this is an idea that shows up a lot in fiction, and I think it, you know, has to do with how a lot of fiction figures women. Um, and I'm not saying that to be like, oh, every time this narrative trope shows up, it's, like, sexist. I'm just saying that, like, I think that's kind of how it operates. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, star- and... And so that makes the question of, like, what would you do instead kind of moot. Like, this Mm -hmm. is not a a song that is thinking about what could Starbuck do if he Mm -hmm. did try to oppose Ahab, because that's just not a possibility. He's Mm -hmm. just in this shitty situation, he's bemoaning it, and he has no options yeah um, in fact in the in the um in the song literally the line is something has tied me to this man and i've no knife to cut the line um which is kind of ultimately going to be contradicted in the sense that literally shooting ahab is presented as a knife to cut that line later in the play and musical and also that is present in the novel and it's not i don't have the ability to do something about ahab it's 
I cannot square that with my own morality. I cannot find, like, a path that squares that with my own desires. And so I end up, you know, stuck in this command structure. Um, yeah, so, so and to be clear, that whole, uh, I have no knife to cut the line, that, that is pretty much directly quoting the book. Mm -hmm. um, however, I think the, the thing that's functioning differently here is that the idea of, like, okay, Starbuck, you're in this intolerable situation. What are you going to do? I think because in the novel, Starbuck is not just a man, but like a man of action. Yeah. Um, I think when we first hear Starbuck giving this lament and being like, I'm stuck, I can't do anything. Um, like all I can do is sort of pray to God that the things I'm scared of happening don't happen, that like we don't run into this whale. It is like a striking degree of passivity and it, it's almost like it's a situation that can't hold. You, I think you kind of know when you read this that eventually Starbuck's going to do something. And that makes the moments when he gets close to doing something but doesn't really do anything. Like, I think that's what makes those moments have drama. Whereas... Yes, there's the... I would say it's the possi... There is the real possibility that Starbuck could act. And... He ultimately doesn't really. No, no, he does not. Um, but but I think that uh, I think that the reason that it feels the way it does when Starbuck doesn't act is because like the understanding of gender, the things we are explicitly told about Starbuck as a person, um, the ex explanations we get of like what mutiny is and how there are actually certain situations in which it's lawful for uh, a crew to take command of the ship away from the captain. All of that stuff in the novel, like, gives you this tension, gives you this desire for Starbuck to do something. And I think that the show, because this song comes so late, and because it's doing this Torch song thing, that sense of expectation is not there. We know that Starbuck is in a bad situation and is suffering, but I don't think we are watching and going, and? So? Uh? Uh? I mean, you yeah, need I, a sense that things are going to happen in the musical period for that, Mark. Yeah, and I, I was kind of thinking about kind of what, what you just said, in it because it happened so late. I've mm -hmm. been thinking, I mean, because yeah. the, the matter of how to fix this is always very difficult, and it's like fixed, yeah. quote-unquote, but it, the situation would certainly not be as thematically dire if we had gotten this in Act 1, let's say. Yeah, and you know, it is in large part quoting from very early on in the book. Short, well, it's immediately go. after the quarterdeck. Well, yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you're, you're totally right. Uh, Starbuck raising Malloy. his initial concern in this, like, in his soliloquy. The, the scene where Ahab pulls a gun on him is pretty late in the book. And that's like, that is one of the moments of it coming to a head after we've already established this tension, rather than the moment that establishes mm -hmm. the tension. Oh, God, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking like musically could be very interesting, like for an early version of this song. And we have a, we get like a little musical motif for like the lines that you mentioned, which are, um, what is it? The, like about the knife. I've, this man. Yeah. And I have no yeah. knife. To, the Specifically, I have no knife to cut the line and have that presented as a motif early on. And then when we have the confrontation with Ahab and Starbuck, have Ahab use that same melody as his threatening. Ooh. Also, have them sing. And have <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, sing. I was just saying, I was just thinking, in the light of this, have this song earlier, have 
the confrontation that was last lines be a song, especially because, you know, Ahab is like a competent, you've cast a competent singer. <laughs> Let yes, them yeah. sing with each yes. other. Yeah. And like, Let them do honestly, a duet. I, I <laughs> feel a fucking like... duet between men, between what, where one of them pulls a gun on the other, like, yeah. that's great. That's, I, that's like, compelling. It's That's musical theater. And I feel like oh. this musical doesn't have any, like, I'm not saying it doesn't have, like, where things where actors harmonize with each other, but it's, I feel mm. like there is no proper duet. There is no proper, mm. these two characters are singing with each other in a way that feels thematically duet. Yeah, like, there's not. Yeah. Because, so, I would yeah. say the closest thing might be a bosom friend. It might yeah. be. Yeah. Which Ouch. is not flattering. Ouch. <laughs> like, to be fair to... Malloy's methods, uh, <laughs> he tends to take things directly from the book, and there's a lot of speeches and very relatively little dialogue in the book. When there are scenes of dialogue, they tend to be between secondary characters, not between, say, Ahab and Starbuck. With this, these sections that get quoted as just spoken wor- spoken sections in the musical are some of the most involved dialogue mm. between Ahab and Starbuck. Um, there's also a section that, uh, is used in the quarter deck, but again, that sort of just dissolves into the quarter deck. But that's not really an excuse when you're copying and pasting and, 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 like, piecing together, uh, mosaicing this new version mm-hmm. of these scenes from language in the book. You could totally put together duet, even if it's the two of them having soliloquies in parallel on oh opposite ends oh, of yeah. the deck. Oh, fuck, what if Sunset Dusk was a duet? That'd be amazing, because, okay, we mentioned that uh, the speech that is basically being quoted by the song comes earlier in the novel. It's Those are literally Sunset and Dusk of the same day in the book, where there's little chapters moving us through time in the immediate aftermath of the quarterdeck. And it's, Sunset what? is Ahab reflecting, yes! oh Sunset is Ahab going like, alright, I've got the men on my side, but can I keep them and dusk is starbuck being like oh god he has the men on his side what am what am i gonna do that's they're both uh, having genuinely oh my god it's like (laughs) these opportunities i hate how often we're coming to points where it's like this would be great musically like imagine these two in conversation with each other but like not in conversation each other you know in the way theater does yes I've been trying not to, trying to not do too much of the like, why didn't you do this? Because, you know, it's not the most fruitful critical yeah, realm. Yeah. But then something like this shows up and it's, uh, it's, why did you make these two things that were, why did you make them further apart? Yeah. Which made them worse. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. No, it's the, like, I, that's just, <sighs> Yeah, like, I I agree. Like, I'm generally not fully an advocate of, like, this mm-hmm. would, This is the better version of this. But yeah, yeah. in this case, <laughs> it's just... The fact that we can so easily say these things is just a testament to how poorly Malloy understands this book and the the, the things it's trying to do artistically. And yeah, you know? yes. <laughs> it's... I really... The book Moby Dick has sections where it breaks into theatrical directions, like, hypothetically, we previously described it on this podcast as, like, modernist, because it's it's experimental in its structure in a lot of weird ways. Mm-hmm. And that move to theatricality, move to, like, staging happens after the quarter deck. Sunset and Dusk are straightforwardly, again, I, I use Hamlet as my example, but they're, like, they are Shakespearean. They are just straightforwardly theatrical moments put in direct juxtaposition. And it would be so easy to just use that. And I think that Malloy really 
thinks of himself, and I'm going to be mean here, he thinks of himself as a better organizer of fiction than Melville. He thinks of himself as a better author than Melville, as we see in all those moments where he's embarrassed about Moby Dick and his love for the book and the, the curiously long segments and so on. And so I think that this reorganization is in part because he's making the assumption that just because, you know, Ishmael, I am strongly of the opinion, is not a great storyteller, but Melville is. And I think that he just, he's like, oh, well, these two sections, I can just pull them apart. Nothing changes, right? And it's, no, those two sections really work together well. And then when you can, people who have not read the book can see that these two bits could have gone together. Mm. <laughs> because I, they did go together. It just makes me even more baffled uh, about the fact that he was an English major. Like he, yeah. from his Wikipedia, like he studied English and music composition. And it just, I... This shows he did not pay attention when they were teaching just, Moby Dick. I, I totally believe that, but I also believe that even if he paid attention, Dave Malloy seems to have a certain degree of hubris. And I'm normally in favor of hubris, <laughs> mm -hmm. but like the sort of, okay, yes, I I can see this, or I, but I believe that the image in my head is necessarily the better one. It's like, I believe that you can, you know, take some cracks at Moby Dick. We, we certainly have, but it's not... You can't come to it thinking this was incompetently constructed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and speaking of this, just another example of this that really bothers me. What do you two, our guests, make of the line, I hope that God hides that whale like a goldfish? At the end of this what, song. Um, what the fuck does that mean? I, yeah, <laughs> thank you. It's a, it's a very yeah. weird metaphor. So, I think... Or a simile, I guess, whatever. I was gonna say it's it was I was I'm con conflicted because Star Bubs, Star Busby, Bubsy, Star Busby, but yeah, really pulls it off. <laughs> yeah, no, it, there's a lot of and at there's first a I was lot like, more emotion. I like that line. Um, and then I thought about it and went, wait, <laughs> I'm I'm, ex I'm interpolating meaning into I'm like okay hides that whale like like turns that whale into a goldfish and therefore it's harder to find in the ocean. But that's not what that line says. That line says, I hope that God hides that whale like a goldfish. Because yeah. you know, <laughs> hides a popular goldfish. saying where you hide your goldfish. Everyone mm. yes. that. I, it's mind-blowing. Like, yes, I think that you're totally correct that the, like, the interpolation, the, in, the effect is, I hope that God makes the whale as small as a goldfish, so completely lost in this great ocean. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's because that's like... And a creative act of the listener to try and make this mm -hmm. make fucking sense. And the actual line from Moby Dick, because it is quoting something, which is specific, somewhat, it's, it's paraphrasing mm -hmm. it. The actual comparison is saying that the hated whale has the round, watery world to swim in as the small goldfish has its glassy globe. Uh, and uh, the idea is that while it's basically saying the entirety of the ocean is Moby Dick's, like, living space, and he swims freely in it, and there's this the image of the globe versus the, you know, glass goldfish bowl. So while the goldfish, small and golden in its bowl, is at, in, as, is at home, sorry, that was just jumbled, the whale has so much space for its natural home, it's easy to believe that we won't find it. The goldfish is visible and present and is not at any point hidden in Starbucks' mm -hmm. use of it, but the whale is hidden by that comparison. And so you can get to the idea of, I wish that whale were as small as a goldfish so that it would be even harder to find, but the actual 
comparison being made, the figurative language is being completely butchered by this transformation. And it can, it's so baffling to me because it's just, you could have used any metaphor there. At this point, you are not using the literal words of the book. You're not really drawing the book's, like, interesting language out. There are other metaphors in that chapter for the impossibility of finding the whale in the vast ocean, and you used this. <laughs> also, I notice, I, I dislike what it's done here, because it in a song that is all about how little Starbuck can do, mm-hmm. it puts a weird bit of agency into it, even though it's more like God's agency and Starbuck praying to God. But in this quote, it very much is Starbuck being like, well, I sure... You know, there's a big ocean. I sure hope we don't run into it. Yeah. I sure hope we don't yeah. run into Moby Dick, which is another non-agency thing. It's another, like, I ha- I can't do anything here and I just have to yeah. hope. Rather than, yeah. like, I think there's a little weird bit of, like, yeah, it, 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 it butchers that quote in a way that I did not realize and is kind of amazing. Yeah, it's it's not even like a famous line. It's not like your your Moby Dick fans are going to go, oh yeah, goldfish, yeah! <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the things that also makes changes what's going on here is the way that God and like Christianity have been portrayed in this musical mm. so far. Because I or think... Or not portrayed. Or not portrayed. Um, because those things have been like, I mean, they've been very present. Like we opened with a sermon. Yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, there's also been this kind of sense of like, ah, religion's all fake, um, from like the Fadala bit. Um, and so I think that that makes this, I hope God hides that whale. Like, in addition to it being weird because of the meaningless metaphor, it's also like, it's just, this is, this means nothing, right? Like, hoping that God hides Moby Dick is not a not a real statement of faith it's it's not really a prayer right it's it's mm-hmm. it's more like just ah shit i hope that doesn't happen yeah um and and i don't mean to say that like i don't think that moby dick the novel is like super aggressively believe or, or is not like pushing really strongly the idea of like the the effectiveness of prayer to accomplish miracles mm-hmm. sure but, but starbuck is a very religious character exactly and so i think that when starbuck says things like Stand by me, hold me, bind me, O ye blessed influences, which is the last line of of the chapter Dusk. Like, that is a prayer for, basically, angels to, like, support his soul and hold him strong against Ahab's, like, evil influence. And I think that actually means something to Starbuck. Yeah. Like, I think he's actually asking for some kind of real help there. Yeah. Um, Starbuck is asking... Sorry, go on. I was gonna say, I kind of wish that had been in the song because that's a more yeah like that. That I think I wish that Starbuck was given more of an emotional rooting in this song that isn't just Ahab. Yeah, yeah. you um, know, give would... give us the other part that you know, uh, you know, what is what else is Starbuck dealing with should be in Starbuck song. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um... <sighs> Yeah, and I think part of this is, is again, because Starbuck in the novel is very much the, the sign and seal of propriety, the most reasonable, most moral, most standard whaling Nantucketer in the novel. 
uh, and therefore his inability to act and his failures are much like with Hamlet, this very intense sort of emotional, but why don't you act? You, you're supposed to be our hero here, Starbuck. What are you doing? And I think that his religious convictions therefore read as both a positive element, but also, you know, insufficient to this task. And I think that there's no such sense in the musical that his religious sentiments are like a stabilizing or centering part of him. Mm -hmm. He's described as being a God-fearing man in an early song, but we don't actually see Starbuck being religious at all, as far as I can remember. Yeah, I think I can quote you a line from Knights and Squires that is basically exactly what you were just asking for, Clay. Mm-hmm. Um, and if at times these things, uh, doesn't really matter what these things are, just stuff he deals with, bent the welded iron of his soul, much more did his faraway domestic memories of his young cape wife and child tend to bend him still more from the original ruggedness of his nature and open him still further to those latent influences which in some honest-hearted men, restrain the gush of daredevil daring, so often evinced by others in the more perilous vicissitudes of the fishery. So there's this idea that Starbuck has this, like, baseline bravery and, like, heroism. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, some things bend the welded iron of his soul, especially his memories of his family. Um, That he has this kind of vulnerability, but it's within a sort of fundamentally iron core... um, in contrast to Ahab, who is like all iron, all iron, <laughs> has no soft heart, um, or or at least, you know, that is how he's initially presented. Yeah, and we, then we this don't, I- yeah. Then this idea of their vulnerabilities and their feelings about their wives and children gets developed. We'll get to the symphony eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, I'm saying that this idea of like Starbuck as a person with conflicts in his character, strengths and weaknesses, is in the novel. Very yeah. like straightforwardly in the novel. Mm-hmm. I did, I would like to mention, I did just grip my, uh, grip my arm, like, my chair arms very tightly there, because, uh, I, you know, turns out maybe you should mention the, you know, I actually think the stuff with the kids and the families near the end of the thing, near the end of this musical is really good, and the most emotion I felt at the, during my re-listen and I, if the fact that his children are mentioned before that yeah, makes me angry death, because I like, I liked him being like, oh man, I have kids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's, kids that's a waiting huge, for me. <laughs> huge part of Starbucks' character is that he's part of the social world of Nantucket. He has a wife and child, and he would really like to see them again. And it has Which a huge it... impact also on all the stuff with the Rachel, naturally, right? <laughs> And, and uh, it just makes it so much more frustrating because, I mean, it's so easy to contrast that with Ishmael, who, you know, is using this as pretty much just like, I'm going to die on this ship and this ship yep. is going to be my world until I die, versus this person who's like, this is my day job, I'm going to go home to my family. Yeah, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. 100% Starbucks like, I just work here. <laughs> I just work here. <laughs> oh, like, ma'am, yeah. this is a Wendy's. <laughs> yes yes god so yeah that's um mm-hmm. that's dusk in all it's both musically more interesting and character wise somewhat disappointing mm-hmm. structure but uh if we wanted more interesting stuff going on but also deeply disappointing oh god all right yeah <sighs> i think it's time okay. we put it on so hard we should first 
I, I just want to say, this is the end of Act 1. We now... Yes. yes. <laughs> this is the point where Danny and I went to the bathroom. Just, you know, this <laughs> yeah. is the, like, there's a real break here. Not just people getting in little boats on stage. This is a real yeah, break. Yeah, yeah. And I um, I remember sort of looking at my phone, like, for, like, the last couple mm-hmm. minutes of this. I was like, oh, my God, when... When, when will break? When happens? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when, when we get there. When are we getting there? Just because, God, it's so, like, I cannot emphasize how long this felt. Like, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, the I haven't re-listened to this as uh, thoroughly as, like, you guys have, but <laughs> it was, like, I, in the moment, like, if there's moments where it just, I can't really remember how things were, what was happening, it's because it dragged and everything kind yeah. of connected <laughs> with each other. And so it felt just like one long four hour song that just kept going and going and going. And that the brain is, is like, I four. can't, <laughs> I can't process it. Part four, part four were the longest seven hours of my life. And it was, yeah. and um, but also part only, three, but also part those collectively, those are the longest 14 hours of my life. And I, oh. there were some moments where visually I feel like, the the people knew people were falling asleep, but I won't get to how they did that on stage until we get to the moments. But I just want to say this kept dragging on okay. and on and on and on. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, and it's... Danny had slightly warned me about like yeah, there's like a slam poetry section. Um, I think I did warn you about that because I did was warn warned. Me, and then I looked, and you just. You see on the program that part three is called Pip, the Ballad of Pip, and I guess now we can enter it. I just wanted to make sure that, like, there was a palpable, like, an important part of this feeling is there is a palpable dread. (laughs) Oh, God, how long is it going to be stuck on this one boy? Yeah. Yeah, and... This was the kernel of the project. This was the first oh! thing that got presented. In it shouldn't have been. <laughs> that was a bad sign. Uh, yeah, I. Oh, they began yeah. as they meant to go like, on. It is. Um, it is truly amazing to me that um, Dave Malloy put on the Ballad of Pip as like a jazz song cycle in 2014, and then like was allowed to have a career. Yeah, producers were I, like, yeah, we I want you to do more of that. Watching Dave Malloy do this. I feel like it's one of those situations where this is very clearly a post Hamilton thing cuz before oh, Hamilton yeah. no one have give well no one would have produced this. No one would have, no one would have said, "Yeah, this is great to put on stage. I'll give you like 5 hours to do this." Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. I this this, more than any other part of the musical, to me, just screams Dave Malloy found out about Hamilton and was just like, I found my calling. I can do this. I can also do Hamilton. And like, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into Hamilton in this section. But, uh, Dave, Dave, you're very white. <laughs> <laughs> also, Dave, yeah. you're not as good. Yeah, it's yeah. like Lin Manuel Miranda. Like, like I, the, however you feel about Lin Manuel Miranda, he's good at what he does. Yeah, no, yeah. He's, no, look, he's he's a, he's a good songwriter. He's a good he, songwriter. There are motifs and like bits and sections in Hamilton that mean that songs that aren't necessarily 
great. They're, they're perfectly fine. They do the job they're doing the musical are super fun to listen to when you listen to the whole thing, like a good concept album, like a good musical, <laughs> because you're like, oh yeah, I remember that bit. Oh, it's musically referencing that. It's visit, like, I think the thing that, just very briefly, m- one of my big thoughts about Hamilton on a craft level as someone who doesn't do musical theater is just, I could totally read the bits mm-hmm. of reference. It was so overt. It was so, honestly, welcoming. And then I find out that also there's a ton of, like, stylistic references to different kinds of uh, hip-hop, different kinds of music that I don't personally have, like, an internal library of. So there was an entire set of references I wasn't getting, but just on the basic level of repeated motifs, character motifs, repeated styles, I could get all of that as a complete ignoramus in this field. And that made the whole thing cohere really well. And there is fucking none of that. And I've read the book for this musical. <laughs> yeah, like, I think a huge thing that's weird about this is something that's present in Hamilton. Um, and that, you know, I I feel like you could have aesthetic arguments about what how this works in Hamilton, what in it works, what doesn't. But something that's definitely true is that there is a lot of stylistic variation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, different songs, different characters sing and rap in different musical styles in that show. That's just, like, mm-hmm. a fact. Um, and there is also a lot of musical stylistic variation in this show, but it has, like, no connection to character or theme for the most part. Oh, yeah. For the most part, I will say Stubb has a pretty reliable style, and Stubb is great. This is why Stubb yeah. is the best. <laughs> That's <Okay>. true. <laughs> um but yeah, like, uh, in terms of, like, stylistic variation, the Ballad of Pip has a lot of it, but I don't really know what it's doing. Um, okay, one, the first song is just called Pip, and it's Ishmael doing an, an anachronism. Um. Yeah, and it's, it's like, it's basically just Ishmael talking about how Pip was just, like, the cutest and best little kid ever. Um, yeah. And we all loved him so much, which is like... He made excellent mixtapes. Yeah. yeah, I gotta say, that bit is actually fucking wild compared to the bit from the novel. Because, like, that there is a very racist section in the novel in which Ishmael <laughs> talks about how friendly and cool black people are. And how they love how if it were up, you know, they love holidays and Pip was like that. And, you know, if it were up to black people in America, every day would be Christmas or the 4th of July. And then in this fucking song, Dave Malloy says that Pip, every day was 4th of July, every night was Christmas Eve. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I would like us to... I don't know what I'd like us to do. Yeah, it's, it's very weird. The, like, the, the characterization of Pip as, like, essentially a minstrel character, right? Like, someone who's always dancing and singing and playing his tambourine is mm-hmm. basically just presented totally straight in the song. It's just that now it's presented as being heroic and good and too good for the sinful earth. Mm-hmm. And, like... It's not like there isn't some of that in Melville, but Melville is trying to, like, use his, you know, 19th century brain to try to produce a positive image of Pip as this young black boy who plays the tambourine a lot. It's like, look, there's a minstrel element here. You can't get away from it. Melville is directly using it. But he's also then plunging into all his weirdness and, you know, to some extent it's him using the stuff that's around him at the time. 
not defending it, just saying that's what it is. Malloy, you're not in the mid-19th century. You could have used other sources besides The Castaway, Chapter 93 of Moby Dick, for your image of who Pip is that maybe would make him a little bit less that. Yeah. Great way to start. Yeah, <laughs> I... I'll be honest, I don't have much to say about Part 1, Pip, because, first of all, Anything we say here, we could we could just say for the next three songs, because they <laughs> do the same thing. Th this part is the same song four times, different every time, but never really much better. Never good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <sighs> we do get yeah, a I bit more unhinged as it goes on. And, uh, like, <laughs> That's yeah. the word! Both, like, That's the word! Both, like, I mean, because it's... I it seems to be describing I did read this part of the book like Pip goes sea mad kind of yeah. Yeah. which um could be any number of many things I suppose um yeah but I mean, oh. it also I don't know there's a lot there's a lot to it in this it becomes this dense I'm going to talk about free association soon it's this oh, dense yeah. signifier ball except Nothing, nothing matters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really weird, and what? it's really bad, and I, one thing that the Pip sections do really have going for them in the book, as well as there's some really interesting thematic stuff going on with Pip. I don't want to say that Pip does not have a lot mm -hmm. there in the book, but one thing it does, one thing that the book does have dealing with Pip is that it, there's some pyrotechnic language that weirdly is not copied over. This is Almost a ton of this is either stuff that wasn't about Pip, or is stuff that was pulled from elsewhere to be about Pip, or that's just Dave Malloy writing his own in that infinite bullshit into these sections. <laughs> mm -hmm. Whereas in the book, there's this metaphor that we spent like an yeah. hour picking apart that's this elaborate thing about the idea that like, you know, a jewel is set off best, you know, normally it'll look beautiful against someone's, like, living skin, but if you want a jeweler to show you all its intricate fascination, you put it up in unnatural lighting and against a dark background, and Pip is that kind of jewel where his, like, luster and shine and love of life became something fascinating and brilliant and truly, like, infernally beautiful only after his mind was destroyed and his love of life was lost into this unnatural setting. And it's this fascinating, bizarre, verbal pyrotechnic that could have been so weird and fascinating in this section and is completely left out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the reason that the, like, Pip as Jewel image is left out is kind of part of the reason why you and I had to, like, pick it apart in so much detail on the podcast, which is that, um... It's hard. Well, it's, yes, it's confusing. <laughs> it would be very difficult to put this into music lyrics and have it come across clearly, but part of it, part of this also is that there is a weird, complicated thing going on in that image in the novel with, like, blackness and brightness, um, and it's... Uh, when you look at it at first, it kind of feels like what the metaphor is saying is something along the lines of, like, uh, blackness cannot be bright, but Pip was a black person who, like, had some kind of shine to him, and therefore... But it 
it's doing something much weirder. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> but I the, think... the line that I think is crucial is, for even blackness has its brilliancy. And so there's this idea, and I think that in the context of a, of a novel, it's super involved in the question of what is whiteness symbolically. Here we have this sort of, and what is blackness symbolically as a color, as a, as a concept. And obviously that's not happening in the musical. Yeah, and, and I think part of the reason for that is just that you can't, like... It is about race in the novel. I'm not saying it's not about race yeah. in the novel, um, mm-hmm. but it's also literally about like the colors, light and dark. And I think in a no- in a musical that's so obsessed with race and that's only interested in the whiteness of the whale as racial whiteness, and not any of the other weird things that whiteness is in the novel, it also couldn't be interested in this imagery of blackness as anything other than racial blackness. And so, like the metaphor would just sound racist rather mm-hmm. than, like, racist and complicated. <laughs> um, should we go to Tambourine? Which yeah. I think is probably oh. the wildest oh. shit in... I would say Tambourine is the wildest shit in this musical. Oh, I yeah. can't oh, yeah. argue with yeah. that. Tambourine is going? what if Fidala's section was undeniably written by Dave Malloy. <laughs> <laughs> And many other things. I hate... Also, like, also, like, what if Fadala's section was, rather than in the mode of, like, stand-up, mm-hmm. what if it was in the mode of, I mean, spoken word, I guess, but really mm-hmm. the mode of a manic episode? Mm-hmm. Like, it felt to me just like, you know, your, your independent library's open mic slam poetry night. Yeah, so you mentioned free association, Clay. Yeah. <laughs> so, a lot of it is very obviously in that mode. You know, you have things, where's the, uh, I'm trying to find, I had a one that looked, that I was like, ah, when I heard it, um, <laughs> because it's very, the whole thing is free associating. Yeah, the, it's, it's just, it moves from uh, idea to idea, purely mm-hmm. through kind of um, linguistic and imagery connections. Yeah. Um there's my pip is a raven, my pip is a dove, I'm Toucan Sam, I'm Sam I am, and I do not like green eggs and ham. I'm the Lorax, ka ka ka, my pip is a bird of paradise. That, the God, bird of that ha- sucks so much. Which, Sorry, go on. The thing is, first of all, I think everyone can have their own opinions on free association and this specific style of poetry. However, part of what is impressive about it live is... It as an improvisational thing. It mm-hmm. as making these connections, seeing what connections... Because Free Association, very big into beat poetry, I believe. Right? It's the, what does your brain make? Do you come up with interesting new connections? Mm-hmm. If you write this ahead of time, uh-huh. if you write this five years yeah. before we watch it, <laughs> it's not interesting anymore. Because yeah. you had five years to write My Pip is a Raven, My Pip is a Dove, I am Toucan Sam, I am Sam I am, and I do not like green eggs and ham. Also, admittedly, this is just like... This is mediocre free association. Like, this is just yeah. not, this is not a wide range of imagination. And you're not getting these interesting things where you kind of have to set your own... You have to sort of get a little you bit manic yourself... Out. Or like, figure yeah. it out, or you start, like, like sometimes I like watching this because sometimes, you know, it can vibrate with your brain, right? And you get on the same level, and you're, 
you 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 kind of match some of this energy and this mm-hmm. isn't that it's not very good it reminds me of and this is my quick little recommendation for something outside this anyone here ever watched documentary now oh yeah there's oh, a there's a um parody of swimming to cambodia where bill hader does like free association um, and it's very funny because it's bad free association. And it sounds just like this. <laughs> yeah. And I fully recommend, uh. but it's good because it's like, it's Spalding Gray's Swimming to Cambodia, which is this concert film where Spalding Gray does this one man show with free association. And this is him talking about his role he had in the m- movie, The Killing Fields. And the parody of it is just, you know, really honing in on the ridiculousness of like, one, this is practiced, and so some, and it's like, you know, these are highly rehearsed mm-hmm. improvisational turns, and and like here, just some of it is stupid, <laughs> like or like yeah. Just, yeah, just the the connections. It's like, oh wow, like, what if Pip is a, I'm getting Pip is a bird, but oh no, there's a scarecrow, and. Yeah, and, and whales so, don't have hate crimes. Oh my god! god. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the number of things in this sequence that are... You can tell almost immediately how each sort of loop of association works. Because it starts with something from actual Moby Dick. Like, mm-hmm. uh, Pip as a raven and a scarecrow. That is, that is a thing that Pip mm-hmm. briefly says in one of his moments of, like, you know... Pip is weird, rambling, and free associative in the novel after his uh, soul goes down and does not come up again. But the associations he's making are, first of all, from the fucking 1800s. <laughs> so it's not Toucan Sam, yeah. it's not the Lorax, it's not this bizarre jar- garble of like pop cultural stuff. So his raven references are, in fact, connected to things like minstrelry, which isn't better in a certain sense but it's certainly less jarring to the mm-hmm. audience even if it is like ah that's uh, i that there's things we're thinking about here but like the um the scarecrow image is him talking about flask the raven image is minstrelry that's the thing it's referencing a specific song and the overall effect here is that the song will go away from Moby Dick for a second, and when it does that, it'll be these, like, incredibly obnoxiously meaningless phrases, mm-hmm. and then it'll turn back in towards Moby Dick, and again, you'll get a little bit of more, obviously, more concerted meaning and communication before it then briefly goes through Dr. Seuss again. Yeah. <sighs> I'd, I'd like to talk about, um... Because... I, okay, I want to actually basically go through this song in order because yeah. not like every single line but Thank i want to start with the beginning where elijah which by the way um this character is credited as elijah in the lyrics but i assume there would nothing like that was said on stage so i guess from your perspectives as audience it, members it was just some person who came out of the the cast i'm guessing yeah it was just one of the um it was someone who was up until that point a uh one of the like sailors yeah, ah. that's more or less what I thought was going on. <laughs> Anyhow, so this this other figure who is we're told is Elijah, but really has nothing to do with the character mm-hmm. called Elijah in the novel, is now like telling us about Pip uh, and telling us about Pip's like madness. And 
decides to do that, or Dave Malloy decides to have that happen through, like, denigrating the mental health struggles of the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like, there's this yeah. really aggressive, like, you think you're crazy? Well, you're not crazy like Pip was crazy. He had, like, true prophetic madness. And it just pisses me off so fucking much. Like, mm-hmm. I don't believe Dave Malloy has ever been to a psych ward. I just don't. Um, because if he had, he would be fucking posting about it. Uh, <laughs> um, and like, we would know, we would know if like, he had. I, I just think that it's really like, there, there are different ways that our culture treats people with different sort of with, with what our culture categorizes as different types of mental illness, right? I think that mm-hmm. DSM categories are in many ways kind of um, artificial uh, or, or, or at least can't describe the fullness of, like, human experience. Um, but I also do think that, like, when a person has something that, like, society can categorize as depression, that person gets a very different cultural response from someone who has something that society categorizes as, say, schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. um, Or any number of, like, there's... You hear what I'm saying, right? That there are some mental illness, or some types of mental illness that are much more stigmatized, that can lead to much greater levels of dehumanization. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that there are also people whose, like, official diagnosis is depression who also get, like, dehumanized by our health system and by i mean uh criminalization and stuff like that and obviously race plays into this but the point that i'm trying to make is like yeah there is some kind of experience of reality that can't be reconciled with the kind of typical neurotypical whatever experience of reality and that's different from you know the way that like a fucking wellness app encourages you to think about mm-hmm. mental illness. But the way that this musical is mobilizing that distinction is all about insulting everyone in the audience who mm-hmm. might feel like their mental illness has genuinely made them like mad or genuinely set them apart from society. And it's just so shitty. Yeah, it's the it's the oppression Olympics approach to everything. Yes, I wanna it totally point, is. I want to point out that that bit. So you you think you're yeah. crazy? Do you deep down you think just because you can't handle it on the subway sometimes, or because you cry at the grocery store sometimes, or because one time you stop to watch a squirrel in the park for a real long time? It's all the external signifiers, which is yes. really upsets yeah. me. Mm-hmm. It's very you know yeah. it's. Like, you can't handle it on the subway sometimes is such a outward look at, like, oh, admit, that one, I'm, this is a very specific thing, but I'm severely claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. And so it's like that, you know, it's like, you can't handle it on the subway sometimes. And I'll admit, I, being very claustrophobic, that's fairly, I'm not going to make a thing of, like, severe versus, you know, that's problematic in its own way but oftentimes it does not affect my life because i can walk around on the street (laughs) Mm -hmm. sure you know um but it's that sort of 
you immediately recognize that these are all descriptions taken from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. And that, like, you know, there isn't, you know, yeah, it's it's a it's severely lacking sympathy, which is strange because this is also a half an hour trying to get us to sympathize with Pip. Yeah, yeah I mean. I think there's interesting things to talk about in terms of sympathizing with Pip versus oh, yeah. what else it's doing as well. But the many things it's doing. This this external element is, I think, important, but also it's specifically external, I think, in a way where it's like almost framing itself as responding to social media posts. Like if someone yeah. posts on Twitter, yeah. yeah, I had a really like hard time mm-hmm. in the subway. I, I felt like I was going to have a breakdown, um, but you know, I, I managed to make it out, but I'm really having a shitty day. I think that that's the model of thing that, that it's talking is. back to is specifically people yeah. posting about having a hard time, and that being that being the specific angle of mockery, I think is really cruel in multiple ways. One, very straightforwardly, is that it's being cruel to people for having mental health issues because they're not having them enough to like yeah. count as a quote unquote holy fool. And it's like if people want to talk about their mental health struggles in terms that maybe, you know, don't make them just be like, oh yeah, I suck, but that's their mm-hmm. thing to do. Anyways, the other thing is that it's specifically mobilizing this sense of like, by having it be sort of external, I think it's mobilizing to the audience, hey, you know that person who you think isn't having as hard a time as they post about? That's what we're talking about here. Yeah. Aren't you a little like that? It's mobilizing the fact that I'm sure we've all seen mm-hmm. posts about people having a hard time, whether mental illness or otherwise, and maybe had that moment of like, okay, but your your life is fine. What are you complaining about? It, whether or not that's a good impulse for us to have. I think that it's grabbing onto that and the fact that we only see this, we only see what people choose to post in external, like, posting kind of stuff. So there's a certain degree of, like, okay, but if you're really feeling like that, would you post that? And the answer is often yes. People have their own posting patterns. But I think that 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 little bitter bite of Mm -hmm. cruelty that people can, you know, feel in themselves or, you know, I'm sure we've all... I'm sure there are posts we've seen where genuinely this person is... The way they're posting it is by trying to make themselves look good in a way that doesn't really land. Uh... That becomes a really useful tool for the musical to get you to side with their bizarre, frankly gross opinion that they're putting forward here. Mm-hmm. Which I yeah, it's really interesting that you're bringing up the idea of social media because this reminds me of one of the projects that he took up after I believe it was yeah. after the music, which is Octet, <laughs> the the song cycle because it's a, it's a musical but it's kind of a song cycle where he specifically mm-hmm. says that it's about like social media addiction and like mm-hmm. posting things and how you know the internet is rotting our brains and what and whatever uh you you sent us a really interesting article about it um ben and uh, no I, th- I think that was, was mark uh, yeah i was oh the my one god. who found the slate interview oh my about god. it yeah yes yeah <sighs> yeah everything oh my in god. that interview just like blew my mind um <gasps> it it frankly reading that made me think dave malloy was a worse person yeah. Than I previously thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the, the thing about it that stands out the most is the fact that he felt he could use other people's experiences of a variety of kinds and reorder them and organize them to make, uh, in this particular case, a member of a singing group who wasn't present because they were in hospice 
and therefore possibly soon to die, and and were present via, like, a webcam, and may or may not have been capable of understanding what was going on. They may or may not have been sensate at that time. And he turns that into, oh, there's this sort of sinister presence in a support group of someone who's only present via a webcam, and maybe they're, like, both present and not present in some weird religious overtone ways. It's just like, fuck off. You took that from people's real lives and their real tragedy and turned it into your twee bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I do want to mention, I said that thing about him, like, oh, I'm sure Dave Malloy has never been to a psych ward. I'm not actually sure of that because mm-hmm. um, everything about Octet screams that he's been in 12-step recovery at some point because it's... I mean, it's a show all about 12-step recovery, and, mm-hmm. like, usually when people make art about that, there's a reason why they're obsessed with it. Um, but at the same time, it's also, like, it's such a cynical usage of that type of experience. It's such an assumption that because I've been through this particular type of mental health treatment, that means that I get to define what madness is is and and like what it is for for everyone and and like uh, this frustrates me so much because i have an interest in these kinds of things that comes out of my own experiences um but uh, something that became extremely clear to me in the like types of mental health treatment that i experienced that involved being in certain types of group settings mm-hmm. is that yeah. everybody's going through some wildly different mm-hmm. stuff. Like mm-hmm. I do not yeah. know what other people's like recovery processes are. Um, and uh, like, yeah, the, yeah, let's, let's get into, yeah. let's get into that free association stuff we were talking about mm-hmm. because yeah. um, one of it starts off with some wild, vaguely religious, but mostly just yeah. bizarre statements. Um, so it goes from this stuff about madness to talking about God, and then it goes to saying, is God even cisgender? Uh, <laughs> and then I need to, I, we need to emphasize the chorus, which is everyone else periodically does this sort of like... To the audience, like, repeating, so the guy's like, is God even cisgender? And the quiz is like, is God cisgender? <laughs> oh, I gotta, I gotta ask, for this, for this staging, what the fuck were they doing on stage? You ever watch those SNL skits about high school theater? <laughs> <laughs> that. Cool. <laughs> There's no one, further questions. Elijah's uh, in front. Everyone else is like around him and like yeah. kind of doing vaguely. You know the like everyone is doing the vague rapper hand motions. You know the kind I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do they ever do a thing where they all like throw their hands up in the air and sort of wave back and forth like seaweed? Did that happen? I Guess do not. not. I, I, I don't. don't I don't recall it strongly, but it was a vague. There was a lot of like. Vague hand motions, lots of. It was very. Cons- it was hard not to read it as very conspicuously, like, hip. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, also- and, and then, next step after is God cisgender is, uh. What oh, no. color is God? Like, very literally. I want to. Qu- I, I, 
I want to quote yeah. this because I want to draw attention to a very weird part of it, besides the whole thing, which is weird. Oh, He's yeah. got black or brown or red or white or yellow or the color of the sea. Does that cover it? I did that in a new order just to confuse you. What the fuck what does do you that mean by a new yeah, order? So what does that mean? Like, also, is there a standard order? Well, I, yes. <laughs> the standard order goes, I mean, I don't know if this is precisely the order that Dave Moy is imagining, but I think that the stock phrase that Dave Moy is imagining is, uh, oh, I don't care if you're white, black, brown, red, yellow, or purple, right? Like, yeah. there's a, yeah. there's a, there's a stupid thing that people <laughs> say that, like, but that doesn't have a set order, and I've heard well, that with a variety of different orders. I think that that phrase usually starts with white and black, mm-hmm. and I think the fact that this one starts with black and doesn't get to white until four in. I think, I think that's, that's what's the... intended, but it's still, like, I... unless you have a specific order in mind that that's genuinely confounding i don't think this works as a line no it doesn't i mean i think the thing that's going on here is that that type of that like expression i don't care if your list a bunch of colors or purple a totally absurd Mm -hmm. color that is like a a way of expressing a supposedly colorblind attitude that i think was very popular in a certain kind of liberal zone of discourse in like the late 90s yeah like part of why i think this is so confusing is that i don't think people say this kind of thing anymore like when people want to ask something like when people want to just kind of say any possible race they don't usually do it by listing skin colors in this way Mm -hmm. because that's not really considered to be like i don't know acceptably colorblind yes like now 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 people use that phrasing for like queer stuff they're like i don't care if you're gay gay, straight or whatever and like it's yeah or is god cisgender or is god cisgender i also also wanted to point out the next line which is they Mm -hmm. said in the caribbean they named the skins which is a very interesting you know you know the caribbean which has one language. One culture. Um, one culture and language. Which is just like... Yeah, that that's... I admit, this... I know parts of the Caribbean much better than other ones, so I can't say it. I, you know, for the same reason this is... I think this is totally wrong. I can't prove it's totally wrong. But that's but because, yeah, no, you know... It's... It's an inc- I... Because of many reasons. It's oh. an incredibly linguistically and culturally diverse region... It's also a bunch yeah. of islands, which does a whole thing there. Um, yeah, like... you, might, you might think that given that this is, um, you know, we're on a whale ship, maybe islands are important. Some th- maybe it's yeah, like yeah. isolatos for people from mm-hmm. all these different islands. Maybe, also, maybe, the idea yeah. the idea that, like, a sort of racial categorization of system of people by skin color that exists. Uh, the idea that you can just be like, by the way, here's the racial categorization system of the Caribbean. Even if there mm-hmm. only was one, which obviously there isn't, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that you just sort of drop that in your musical totally uncritically. <laughs> yeah. like, what the fuck? Like, the you know why they do? <laughs> like, yeah, huh? There's a very, I can tell you a very specific reason they do, probably without any more context. Yeah, and then he just goes on to say, and in China, China. they name the skins. My gosh, China, what? also a total monolith, also a place with no history of, like, racial or ethnic categories that 
might be <laughs> totally out of context for this very American yeah, like, show. I gotta say, something that's going on here that I think is incredibly annoying, like, yes, it's racist, but it's also annoying, mm-hmm. is the fact that this musical thinks it's saying something. Dave Malloy thinks he's saying something by saying, did you know that we have colorist categorization systems all over the world in different societies. It's, it's like that person who's like, wow, did you know that xenophobia is older than, like, modern American racism? And it's like, holy shit, no. I've never heard of the possibility that maybe we have something against the Amalekites. Like, it's... The degree of thinking that you are blowing people's minds when you are, in fact, showing your entire ass... In this section of lyrics. That is, that is this half hour of the musical. Is, yes. Yes. It is a extended showing of entire ass. Yes. Um. Yes. A, a thorough mooning. Uh, yeah. Um, and oh. then we immediately go into insulting Moby Dick again. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, just... yes. 900 pages of whale songs. And, yeah, just... Oh. And... and I don't even really know how to describe the movement between this, like, name the skins thing and the next thing I want to talk about, because, frankly, it's just, like, throwing a bunch of ideas out there, yeah, and it's, I, it's I don't mm-hmm. think there is, like, a conceptual they movement here. They name skin colors. Also, free association, there are green men in old sci-fi comic books. That's a separate color of skin. And then also, colors. There's seven of them in a rainbow. Y- yeah. You've heard of Roy G. Biv. And then, <laughs> somehow, this all leads up to the statement... Whales don't have hate crimes. Yes. Yeah. It, oh God. Whales don't have hate crimes. I, I, yeah. Can Can I read the part going up to that? Please. Go for it. If go you for can it. stand it. it, we can stand to hear it. No hell. I can take a bushel. I can take a bushel of whales and I can classify them. And this one is white. And this one is gray. And this one is blue. And that's fine. Oh, that's fine. Oh, we can color code the whales because whales don't have. And then the chorus comes in. Feelings and histories and hate crimes. Whales don't have hate crimes. Which is a fair, uh, which is just a, wow, really, really hard-hitting, uh, this should have won the Pulitzer. Um, Did you it, know whales are better than we are? Because they yeah. don't have hate crimes. They whales are innocent. racism. And, but also there's a weird thing where, it does a weird thing over the course of that where it starts off, in the implication of, oh, that's just fine, we can color code the whales because they don't have feelings and histories, is criticizing humanity for that and implying that whales do have feelings and histories, except then they say hate crimes, and so there is an implication that whales actually do have hate crimes. Don't have feelings. They either (laughs) have hate crimes or they don't have feelings. You only get one. Yeah, like, I... Here's the thing. Um, I don't know about sperm whales specifically, um, but I do know that, like, some cetaceans, like... Do dolphins do hate crimes each other that are like yes, genuinely morally do upsetting do to think about as yeah, a yeah. person oh, yeah. because <laughs> like also whales eat other whales killer whales are fucking terrifying they're great orcas are scary <laughs> yeah yeah if you want to <laughs> claim that different that when humanity categorizes whales into different species that that's the same thing as categorizing humans into different races then you do have to acknowledge that some species of whales selectively seek out and kill other species of whales. Like <laughs> whales have yeah. hate crimes. You heard it here first. <laughs> uh, it's just... also there's just that underlying I feel yeah. comparison of like oh the different species of whale like you know the different species of human. Yeah. yeah. This 
it's trying to grab this idea of categorizing the whales and making a list of them. And the thing is, if this were sticking to Moby Dick the novel's sense of, like, the whale cannot be categorized except, like, basically uh, basically by just sort of arbitrary distinction, that, the, that this is too complicated, you could actually grab that and say, and yeah, we simplify things. We produce races as a way of understanding and categorizing people. That's what it's trying to do. But then it goes into... It has, but it's been constantly, and in here it's reminding us that it has been agreeing that there are different species of whales with fundamentally different qualities. This musical believes in science, and it's backed itself into the corner of implicitly believing in race science. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Yeah. Y- yeah, I think that's kind of <laughs> yeah. true. Um, oh, and, every time I think about this, it makes my brain hurt in new ways. <laughs> this is the part Okay, so our where, next... Sorry, go I on. Say, this is the problem with this sort of... This is the problem with this free association, is you're developing this... Like, if it was good, I'd call it a rich tapestry of metaphor, but here it's like <laughs> a tangled skein of yeah. metaphor yeah, like that... that every part of it is pulling on too many other things to, like, you know, I think if we weren't going by this bit by bit, if we actually really read this through and looked at it holistically, we'd find worse things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, no, it's... We'd find all sorts of weird fucking moves that, like, if you think about the implications, which they clearly aren't, you're going to get bizarre things. And, like, if the point is to just have this overwhelming tumult of symbols to give you the this, you know, manic episode feeling of free association, why is it so consistently hitting the same beats? Why is yeah. it so coherent, except when it dodges into deniability by referencing Sam I Am? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I want to like, I'm like, I want to send Dave Malloy like a real nonsense work or not non, but like, a, <laughs> so I, I want to be like, look, read this and tell me how you like, and, and see how you're actually dangling at loose signifiers there and not just like, you know, yeah. like, what about whales don't have hate crimes? Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's also so wild to me. One of the things I think that is going on here is uh, a kind of, like, so, like, the, I said that manic episode thing, and, and the, the reason that I said that is that I mm-hmm. think of, I think of kind of core to my understanding of mania, my experience mm-hmm. of mania, let me be honest, is a kind of, like, constant connecting everything, mm-hmm. right? And and so that that's kind of what's going on in this show, is that, like, you say one word, and then that word has other associations, and you keep going. But for me anyway, and I think this is, if I wanted to make any kind of art out of this, I think this is the thing that would make it function for me, mm-hmm. is that all of the associations happen. So you can't mm-hmm. just, like, do... The thing that this does that I think is mind-blowing is that it's got this long section about the skins, right? And it's talking about race in terms of skin, and then it's going to go on to say this thing about the skin of a drum, but there's no interest in what those things are together. Mm-hmm. We're, yeah. The, mm-hmm. the, the connections don't loop back in on themselves. They don't make a web. They don't make yeah. a tapestry like you're describing, no. right? They just make a weird wiggly linear movement. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like you're unspooling a thread more than tying things together. It's like a knotted yeah. thread. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's your headphones and, and, when they've been in your pocket. 
Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and, and so, like, this thing that's about to happen with the idea of, like, the skin of a tambourine, like the skin of a drum, mm-hmm. if you try to put that in context of the idea of the skins, meaning, like, the races, it's also saying some bizarre shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, that's not... I don't think it realizes that it did that, despite the fact that it literally uses the same word. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not actually attempting to construct, like, a symbolic register for Pip. Or it's, even, like, the thing that I'm arguing for is not necessarily the idea of a coherent symbolic sure, sure. register. It's just the idea of something where associations are followed, where all associations are yeah. followed. Where, where every... Everything is right there, and and it is incoherent, because if you have, like, every possible thought you could have all at once, it'll be incoherent. Um, But (laughs) it would at least uh, be more complex. Yeah, self-referential complex, and frankly, harder to follow as a song, but I don't like following this song, so I'd be okay (laughs) with that. I'd be okay (laughs) with this song being like, you're going to experience an impossible ball of contradictions and constant cross-references that's like Pip's experience of the Pequod in America, and then we're going to try and explain it to you later, make it more accessible. And I think that's kind of what this is trying to go for, but it's not, because it's very, very unsophisticated. I am going to break my little thing and do another bit of hey, here's something you can do. If you want to link together really complex and self-referential and mixing around ideas, you have a mnemonic aid that is the other half of a song called the music. (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) Right? You can write these, like, I'll be honest, this is, this is part of, like, the thing Sondheim is famous for. I was just thinking about... these deeply complicated manic songs that you rely heavily on the music to, like, I'm this thinking how, of, um, uh, I'm thinking of Sweeney on. Todd. I was thinking is, of Into the Woods. Yeah, both they of them. They both do it. <laughs> like, because, yeah, there will be, Sondheim loves a song where, like, six different characters are all saying things at once that are all expressing linguistically complicated ideas, which you could not possibly comprehend just by watching them on the stage, like, and hearing the words. But Mm -hmm. the melodies that they're singing are all, like, things that have come up earlier in the show and that have been associated Mm -hmm. with ideas. And, like, that's the big... That's his, like, trick, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, There's gonna be a song that tries to do that later in the season. It it does. It doesn't do it well, though. No. (laughs) No. Like, I I keep feeling, like, the peak of... uh, Like, another peak of, you know, all of these complex musical things coming together is notes from phantom of the opera like both yeah. version of notes because like you have mm-hmm. people sing like every time for example specifically raul whenever he comes into notes he's always singing the tune of think of me which is christine's song so mm-hmm. it's like well you know whatever he does is because he has that in mind and then i don't know it sorry it just there's so much going on no. in notes it's, but, yeah. but yeah is, it's like it's yeah. a big show-stopping number it's a big and to be number. clear here what we have is a very is a drum circle like uh is, yeah. is like Open is spoken word poetry drums, um, which it's explicitly a drum there. circle in the lyrics. Yeah. It's a drum circle. Yeah, uh, but in the lyrics, it's a like a native spiritual drum circle. It's yeah. not the thing that it actually is, which, which is as you say, like an open mic night, like mm-hmm. kind of embarrassing uh, drum circle. Okay, mm-hmm. sorry, Clay. Please go. On. <laughs> no. I'm just saying. Oh, no. Um, it, it, it just I, mobilizes the idea of a kind of more impressive drum circle. Yeah. Um, 
I know I I have nothing to say. I just want to keep talking, or I don't want to, but I think the, let's to, keep going to, to, to the end going. of one day. No longer talking about this. Let us continue. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this oh. whole imagery of uh, this is going to move into things called the tambourine. That's probably the thing that is yeah. spent the most time on in the song. Is just yep. taking the image of a tambourine and just playing with it. Um, and uh, uh, not very well. Yeah. So there's this. There's this idea of the three parts of a tambourine, like the wood, the metal, the skin, right? That's how a tambourine is constructed. It's got like a cylinder of wood, it's got metal janglers, and it's got a skin mm-hmm. st- stretched over it like a drum head. Um, and Elijah says, the wood is your bones, the metal is your mind, and the skin, is the skin your soul, or is soul the movement through the air, the sound waves themselves vibrating air against your ear, drum to drum? Uh, I'm going to say something really, really, like, just bad faith here, but the skin is your skin. <laughs> yeah, bro. It like, is, though. Uh, I gotta say, there's almost something there, which is that, the, is the skin your soul? Like, the question of, is your, mm-hmm. well, you know, will you be judged by the color of your skins, etc.? Yeah. It's, it's the classic mm-hmm. imagery of, you know, of anti-racism. Is the skin determinative? And in Moby Dick, it kind of is, in that the idea of these racial, cultural qualities that people have that are not directly, it's not really talking about things in a straightforward, like, colorist spectrum way, the way that this is implying, but it is categorizing people by a combination of, like, location, ethnicity, color of skin, that's happening in Moby Dick. But in this case, there's no engagement with that, mm-hmm. because that seems like it would be hard. <laughs> Instead, you just immediately get this, like, is it this, or is it this? Is God cisgender? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's... <laughs> rhetorical questions are only good if they are rhetorically leading somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the- yeah. I feel like the only creative use of language here in this section is the ear drum to drum because like ear I drum like and the, drum, but yeah, that's even like, say, that, that, that's to... fun. That's fun, but like you know, in no other place does it do it. So I don't even want to give credit to how like like linguistically interesting that fragment is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I genuinely think the uh, so like here's the thing, this idea of like three parts, right, and the yeah. parts being the the bones the mind and the soul mm-hmm. this is actually an image that recurs quite often in moby dick um yeah not bones but body mind and soul being a theologically important tripartite, mm-hmm. uh, tripartite division in moby dick and which is also a very important division in the early christian church and in yeah. gnosticism so if I... you wanted to take the idea of a tambourine having three parts and a sort of human self mm-hmm. having three parts and play with those ideas and do something with Pip there, that would be... I think you could do a lot with that. Um, but, but it's nothing here. Especially because this, as we'll see in in the later some of the later songs in this Pip section, this show doesn't understand how what happens to Pip relates to that three-part structure. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, like, it's pretty much explicitly said in the book that Pip is just body and mind now. The soul is fled. Mm -hmm. And if there is something there now that is sort of fulfilling the soul's purpose of like animating force, that something is not Pip anymore. And no one really knows what it is. Um, So if we wanted to do that with this tambourine image, does that mean that the 
drum skin of the tambourine has been punctured or removed? Does that mean that the tambourine... Is silent? Is silent, can no longer vibrate? Like, does that mean that, like... It's just the, the shaking. Yeah, exactly. Like, is it? Is it? Which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's, musically, you could, you could with this, you could. You totally could. But, but you could even do it musically. You could have yeah. a change in the musical motifs around yeah. hip that move from like uh, skin percussion to metal percussion. Yes, yes. You one hundred percent. We do keep that. being like, there. You could do things here. You could fix this. I don't think you can fix the pip section. I don't yeah. think this can be fixed. <laughs> but I, think I do think that you could have done it a more, made a more interesting mess. Yes, it's um, rotten. And uh, it moves on. There's some like imagery of like uh, a little bit more about just like Pip, what happened to him. Yeah. Yep. Into he's, this, I just want to point out, Pip's not dead, but he's not alive either. He drifts through limbo, battles through Bardo. Pip caught the spirit, and the use of Bardo there is yeah, like those are two very different things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they really are. Like Bardo is between lives in the generally mm-hmm. understood reading of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is being referenced here with no reference anywhere else. And to be clear, I think that the use of bardo to mean between world, I think that comes from like theosophy and like Mm -hmm. uh, some American spiritual traditions, spiritualist traditions, taking up ideas from Tibetan Buddhism. So I can see how you could use it here. It's not the worst choice of words, but given the context and the lack of context, it feels very like you're trying to get points for being more sophisticated than you actually Mm -hmm. are. (laughs) Also, also, does he battle? Pip battles? Who knows? Yeah. Clay, what were you saying? Oh, no, I was just going to say, also, Limbo is... I, he definitely means purgatory here. Um, yeah, yeah. Because purgatory has not the same, but, like, I can see where you're getting your, like, your parallelism with Bardo there. Yeah, like, you're going through an um, intermediate there is place a purga- to another place. Yeah, Limbo is um, where, where the babies go. <laughs> yeah, Limbo has been uh, the unbaptized babies. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Lim- and Limbo's been officially dissolved recently, according to the Catholic Yay! Church. The babies yeah. are free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, if you notice an increase in inchoate hauntings, this may be because Limbo has been vacated and the babies had to yeah, go they, somewhere. <laughs> they evicted the babies from Limbo. New yeah, podcast and, and like, concept. No. I <laughs> write that down, I like, write that down. Think- I honestly think saying, oh, he doesn't mean limbo, he means purgatory here, is, like, giving him too much credit, because I think yeah. he literally just means limbo, limbo in just, like, the kind of casual Vague. way you would use that phrase to yeah. mean, like, a no place. <laughs> and it, 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 it's, he's not thinking about <laughs> theology. Uh, yeah. But he is thinking was, about religion mm-hmm. and spirituality. Anyway, sorry. I was nerd sniped because this is exactly the kind of stuff that fascinates me. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I feel you. I feel very similarly. <laughs> I also think it's really lazy for him to say Pip caught yeah. the spirit. Because, yeah. like, actually, that's, I mean. That's a whole thing. If somebody yeah, wanted, I, I would be interested to some degree in a working of what happened to Pip that said, yes, what happened to him was that he caught the spirit. He was he, he was taken mm-hmm. over by the Holy Ghost. Yep. But that would require thinking about the the theology of what happened to Pip. <laughs> and... Th- oh boy, we gotta get into that. <laughs> there was no we? Dr. Yeah. Seuss in that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm um, pretty sure. 
<laughs> yeah, no, there's a, there's a line that got used earlier, um, that Pip saw God's foot on the treadle of the loom, and I think they'll say it again in the Pip section. Uh, that's the line for, like, when Pip goes down into the, his soul slips out of him down to the ocean, and he mm-hmm. goes mad. And they're about to, and Mark first pointed this out, I should say, the way this song goes is that Pip went up. He went up into heaven and the spirit, mm-hmm. and he met a bunch of people who were either dead or have not yet been born, as of this the point in time Pip's at, uh, rather than, as in the novel, the only direction Pip's soul goes is down to the depths of the sea, where he sees revelations, and I'll, I'll have more things to say about that, but I just want to point out that we're about to go up, and that never happens in the novel, and it annoys me. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, I think it's a very, like... The fact that in the novel, symbolically, Pip's soul descends to the bottom of the ocean, and yet that's where he sees God's foot, is like, it's interesting. What are you telling us, Ishmael, about where God exists? What are you telling us about what might actually... statement. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right? And the the specific line that, uh, um, that gets said about Pip's madness in the book, which is completely missing from the musical, is... So man's insanity is heaven's sense, and wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought, which, to reason, is absurd and frantic, and weal or woe feels then uncompromised, indifferent as his god. The god Pip sees, and the god that Pip sort of mirrors and spe- and prophesizes, if he does so, is not a involved Christian salvatory god, but like the the strange one, the one at the bottom of the sea, the one who, you know, whose foot moves on the treadle of the loom. Yeah. Indifferent. That's not what happens in the song. No. So now Pip goes to heaven, and now he's going to see a list of people who play tambourines? Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's what this list is. One last mention of tambourines before we get there is that there is a line in fucking Moby Dick in which Pip, a, a... celestial tambourine is mentioned which is um describing uh um he had you know with his like joy at eventide in his you know in connecticut back on land he had turned the round horizon into one star-belled tambourine an image that does not appear at all in moby dick a musical reckoning yeah you'd really think that he would have wanted to make the whole world into a tambourine for this song he kind of does that but but he doesn't use that line, he doesn't use that image, and he doesn't have the image of God shaking the world as a tambourine or Pip being in any way connected to that. The, Frankly, I don't think that Dave Malloy thinks that Pip saw God. And I, I realize that's maybe a little bit of a weird thing to say, but I think that this whole sequence, even though there's like weird prophetic madness, etc., etc., whatever, there's no sense that the larger universe is in any way... Gri- understood by Pip as a result of this, or that he's like, or that the world shook, or that God was present in any way, because this musical doesn't have a sense of what the heck its God would be if it wanted to talk about God. Yeah. Even though we are all in God's hand. Well, all right, I do need to say, this musical does tell us what it thinks God looks like later. Oh. Remember that thing with the Hello Kitty lunchbox, Ben? Fuck, I forgot that entirely, because fuck, I forgot that entirely. Okay, please. Well, my my brain continue. erased that from my memory. <laughs> twice now, and each time I hear it, I immediately file that as irrelevant information that my brain does not need to keep. 
So we got, got this list of tambourine players. We got yes. Miriam. Starting we got Esmeralda. Esmeralda. We got Stevie like, Nicks. Let's be cl- we mean Esmeralda from the fucking Disney Disney show or Disney yeah. movie. Yeah. Like, that Esmeralda. I, I, like, that's 100% what he's thinking of here. I, I yeah. cannot believe that he is just thinking of the genius novel. Genius makes it sound like he's thinking of the novel, but also genius just links to, uh, in every, like, bit that was taken from the novel, just has, with no commentary, the bit taken from the novel that he's, like, referencing. And often this baffles me, because it's just like, you see how these are meaning different things from context, yeah. right? Genius right? is very stupid. This is true, yeah. not just in this. Um, <sighs> but anyway, yeah, so there's just a list of tambourine players. Miriam the Prophet, yeah. Esmeralda, Stevie Nicks, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix... Uh, just fucking so many more. And it decides to also make this a commentary on, like, the history of black music. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, we started with Stevie Nicks. Uh, well, because we're starting with tambourines. I, I but, know. I'm but, just, like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I'm I'm very curious what what our guests got out of this. Both, like, do they have people coming in and standing in for these people no. that are being no, made? No. 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 Okay, cool. No. no. I, it's just the people I chanting was, names. No. I was sitting there going, oh, I know that name. I know that name. I know that name. And Danny, I, were you also doing that? Like, No, I, at this point, I was restraining myself from banging my head against the seat in front yeah. of me. Yeah. Because it's like, like that's, that's a name you want me to reference? That's a name you want me to reference? Yeah, the, bo- this the, is... the, most, the be- most terrible possible thing read of this was just sitting there going like, oh, I have heard of Stevie Nicks. Yes. Oh, yeah. Did Motel. you know? I have heard of that. Did you know that you gotta <laughs> emphasize the two and the four? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. And and like, <laughs> yeah. And um, there's also this is also how we get into the like yeah. extremely lazy gesture toward um you know uh people in black churches like shaking and. Uh, and like indigenous drum circles, which are two very mm-hmm. different things. Uh, yeah. if you wanted to talk about there being some kind of interesting cultural similarity or perhaps some kind of influence exists there, I mean, I you literally might also don't have know, mentioned but... the fucking Quakers, or if you want the idea of religious ecstasy causing people to shake and Tarantellism, there's like vast, vast quantities of this that people have been super interested in as, like, a collection of behaviors, cross-cultural, universal, whatever you want to claim it is. There's people who have thought about that, and they had more than two examples, and they weren't this musical. Yeah, literally, the phrasing is, every man and woman who ever shook in black church, every native who ever shook in a drum circle. And it's so, like, oh, every single one? You're saying all of that was exactly the same shit? And it was about your musical, Dave Malloy? <laughs> Uh, also, yeah, God, this just, I don't want to inflict reading this on anyone, but I also don't want to read it. So if anyone, this section from Welcome Him Into Their Rainbow, Rainbow Choir oh, on is just, uh, do we, do my we brain read all... is shrinking. Go on. Do we want to read all the way down to before the chorus that says Tango with Diamonds? Oh, yeah. yeah. Honestly, oh, frankly, yes. I'd love yes, if we could... Yes, we need to. We need to, um, but please go through Diamonds on the Soles of Our Shoes, because I want to... Okay. I, I know what that's referencing. Yeah. Right. Go for it, Clay. They sing and... They shake and sing and dance for Pip. Welcome him into their rainbow choir. All the skins dark to pale. All of them, all of them God. 
the chorus, Miss Roy G. Biv, made in our image, eating yogurt and plantains from a Hello Kitty lunchbox, whistling as she gives out henna tattoos as we tangle with diamonds on the soles of our shoes. So that's what God is in this musical, guys. Yeah, yeah, it's, oh, it's, yeah. There's, there's no really compelling thing where the feet are at the bottom of the ocean. Um, no, it, it's, it, just, yeah, it's God is a woman, and she eats yogurt and plantains from a Hello Kitty lunchbox. God is Kirsten Cinema, apparently. <laughs> no, I mean, what it, no. What this is, guys, I've got a really mm-hmm. cursed comparison. Like, just a yeah. really, really cursed comparison. Dude, you've all seen the is. image. You've all seen the image of Miku Binder Tony. Yes! Yes! No! I was gonna say that! I was gonna say that! Psychic connection right there. You know how the shirt. The shirt that Miku Binder Thomas Jefferson is wearing says, I met God, she's black. Uh huh. This is Miku Binder Thomas Jefferson. And then Ben jumped from the whale boat. Yeah. Like, this is saying, Uh. I met God, she's a cute little black girl. Who mm-hmm. gives henna tattoos? That's what this says. Uh, yeah. This, um, what else do we say? This is just like I, I met God, and she's an Indian lady. Like it's, she's ethnically yeah. ambiguous, but she does eat yogurt and plantains, has a Hello Kitty lunchbox, and gives out henna tattoos. So she's either sort of ethnically ambiguous in a certain kind of liberal idealized way or she's white in a certain kind of liberal idealized way but is still (laughs) doing all of this yeah and oh god it's just i my soul recoils from these particular lines and like here's the thing so diamonds on the soles of our shoes is a reference to um Fucking uh, Graceland, uh, Paul Simon's Graceland, which mm-hmm. I have an incredible amount of affection for. Um, it's a, he, you know, he's a white American rock uh, guy, uh, and he went and did stuff with Lady, Sli- Lady Smith Black Mombazo, a South African choral group, a black South African choral group. And it was this moment of black South African music being brought into the American rock tradition. And that's not unfraught, but they also, specifically, Lady Sleep Back and also parlayed it into a, like, ongoing career mm-hmm. uh, performing music internationally. Like, you can definitely talk about the forms of appropriation involved in that kind of collaboration between a big name and smaller artists. You can talk about that in many ways, but my impression is that Lady Smith, Smith Black Lamembazo has been basically just have benefited from this massively mm-hmm. and are very happy about this. And Diamonds on the Soles of Our Shoes is... Uh, diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Of her shoes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, it's, yeah, it's... We just had this whole stupid conversation. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. It's one of the things that's important about it is that it's about a... Basically dating a Manny Pixie dream girl who's kind of rich and doesn't really... Or at least I've always read it as this. Doesn't really get the kind of problems that people can actually have. Um, and so there's a certain irony to it. There's an irony to a number of songs in Graceland, because that's Paul Simon all over. And so that makes for a really weird thing to be referencing if you're not just referencing it as a multiracial musical act coming out of South Africa or being involved in South African music during apartheid that was seen as having an anti-apartheid valence. And even then you could fucking reference Jaluka, you My personal opinions about South African rock and, and like, Mm -hmm. anti-apartheid stuff are developed and exist and so on, but the short version is, 
I'm not against this reference in a vacuum, and in fact, I think it could have been a really clever reference if it were meant to undermine the stupid shit that they're saying. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> Sorry to just go off on that. I just... And then, and... No, yeah, thank you. I didn't... I I saw the genius thing was like, hmm, I wish I knew more about that song. <laughs> so well, you just... I... You answered my uh, unstated question. Yeah, no, Graceland's a great album. Anyways... Yeah. It's, it's a better album than this musical. <laughs> I'd, I'd also like to mention that as yeah. we've gone through all this, like, listing of, of musicians and stuff, there I don't think there's been any attempts to bring in any of this music. Like, no. No. there's not been any, like, uh, uh, literally there's lyrical quotations from songs. So, as we just said, Diamonds on the Soles of Our, our Shoes, whatever. Uh, yeah. And then also All Along the Watchtower was quoted. Mm-hmm. And you could have... And that's you could Dylan have sung and those. Hendrix. You could have sung those to the tune of the thing that you were quoting. Or at least bring in instruments. Yeah. There's so much you could have done. Um, oh, and then... Yes, yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, no, I was probably about to do the same thing you're doing. And then we get to call it... what The world loves the tambourine. Here's words for the tambourine from various parts of the world. Not from languages, from parts yeah. of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to start with... <laughs> Israel! In Israel, they call it, and then Genius doesn't actually have the word, which is very funny to me. It is. Yeah, so it's just literally a listing of the words for tambourine in different languages. Although I would assume that the instruments being referred to here are not all straight-up tambourines, because... I have no idea how widespread or old or multiple the tambourine is. I'm willing to allow the elision of the difference between tambourine generally and, you know, rattler instruments of various kinds, but... They certainly don't seem to have more than one tambourine in this musical. Yeah, yeah. like, it, I, I think that uh, from the point at which uh, Miriam was uh, referenced, like mm-hmm. the, the biblical figure, the idea of just kind of like any musical instrument with rattlers has been decided to be a tambourine. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah. yeah, and and he's just doing this kind of like, ah, the whole world has tambourines and there's so many different words for them. But we're literally going to start with Israel. Israel did not exist when Moby Dick was written. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it, and it's like, I know that the idea that Israel can just sort of be included in like a list of worldwide cultures I think that that is a something that, like, American, like, white liberal culture certainly has a very bizarre relationship to Israel. Uh, but I do think that most of the time there is this idea of, like, oh, Israel's just, like, a country with, like, a, a rich cultural tradition, just like any other yeah, yeah. foreign country. Because but, it's making claim to all Jewish tradition. Yes, But I think that by 2019, like, mentioning Israel as just a a country on your long list of countries in a way of kind of evoking the idea of a beautiful global multicultural whole. Like, I think that was starting to get weird even for white liberals by 2019. Like, Oh, absolutely, yes. Especially, especially because there's no mention of Palestine here. Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's not just that we're 
It's not even doing the, like... Two-state solution approach. The whole, like, ah, isn't it beautiful that Israel and Palestine both have these rich cultures? If only they could live in harmony. It's not even doing that shitty move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, it's... I... Yes, sir, go on. Oh, no, sorry. This is... I will, uh, I will wait until this is done, because I have a very petty but interesting thing I have done, been researching while you've been talking about this. Fascinating. I... I I'm going to be quick... Uh, the thing I wanted to point out is that it's clearly trying to reference Hebrew, because again, these are languages, these yeah. are words, not places, but he wants to frame it as places, I think just so that it's more immediately recognizable, because if he said, you know, in Tagalog, they call it, you wouldn't yeah. have the guaranteed referentiality that it's trying to go for, and saying in place makes it sound like you're covering a wide variety of places and peoples rather than covering languages, which are not and- quite the same thing. And even then, it just, I I don't know if it makes it work more or work less, because specifically in the cases of Colombia and India, because like in, it says in Colombia, <laughs> they call it pandereta. In Mexico, we call it pandero. So yeah. it's like, yeah. you know, straight up different words. If you said in Spanish, they call it blank. It'd be like, oh, yeah, but yeah. no. Yeah. But then in India, it's really weirdly complicated because, as you know, there's just like 10,000 bajillion languages in India. Yeah. And it just like in India, they call it like kanjira. And I'm imagining just... That's only one word for it, and one of the many languages that there are in India. So it's also, like, I mean, yeah. like, and I'm not saying this to be like, oh, this is the most important cultural thing in India, but in India, they also call it a tambourine, because yeah. in India, very many people speak English. Oh, yeah, the <laughs> idea of, like, British. the idea that, like, all of these other cultures have their word, it's just, it's 90s as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is... it's not untrue that other cultures and languages languages and peoples have other words for things and talk about things differently but it is also the case that it's not like the world is divided into a bunch of very carefully divided out sections on a map where you just have one language and it's a different language and Mm -hmm. therefore can't we all get along it just feels like a children's cartoon but a bad one yeah this is like uh, did all did any of you um i well okay this is a very like uh, Digressive. This is a no. This is a very like white liberal American thing. So I'm guessing, um, just Danny, based on you mentioning that you've grown up in Mexico, this is probably not necessarily something you experienced. But I think in every elementary school classroom I ever had, there was something on the wall that was like a globe with like people standing on, around it, each oh, yeah. in like different like traditional yeah. costume of yeah. a different place. I remember that. This globe. is that elementary school poster. As a song, or, or not a song, as a spoken word bit about the concept of tambourines. For so, adults. For adults. Yeah, so play. this yeah. is something I, I just want to follow up because it's interesting. Yeah, please I looked do. up all of these words because I wanted oh. to know all of them. And most of them are some variation of a tambourine. And mm-hmm. A lot of them are specifically like, you know, local, slightly different tambourine that makes a different sound, but... You know, has been kind of full, you know, you fold in the concept of tambourine into that. Mm-hmm. Except for the, in China, they call it shogu. Shogu, I think, something like that. I am not very good at Mandarin, but I'm working on it. Um, because I looked that up. That is a drum. <laughs> also, also, zhanggu and stuff. It is, however... The Google Translate thing that they do <gasps> for tambourine, because it is the closest uh, translation, because it is ultimately this specific drum that I can see why that would become the word for tambourine, but the only place online that I have seen this word 
refer to a tambourine specifically is Google Translate. Oh my god. Well, sweet <laughs> good Jesus. job. I Thank am you, Clay. Round of applause for Clay. God, I I don't know where we go from there. Yeah, well, it's Danny, you had something you were trying to say earlier, right? Oh, it was, it was just brief. Uh, like I, so I grew up in like a bunch of different countries, and I went to international schools in all of them. Which you know uh, had this, okay. which mm. I, I to explain a little bit of that. It just, it's it just a bunch of schools in Latin American countries where they're like, here you're gonna speak English unless you're in your Spanish literature class because your parents sent you here to to learn English, mm. and so a lot of the teachers were either you know American or British or Canadian, and because the IB I feel was created because a lot of it was like ib program or like pyp or myp clay also experienced the ib so it just it's Um. it's a whole thing but like i did get to see those posters i guess that's what i'm getting to because Mm. the ib program was kind of created with a lot of these like not not its host countries in mind but you know Mm -hmm. like the u.s and lots of like english-speaking places in europe and around the world and so they had like we want to teach all of the kids about every culture which made for a very interesting thing where i'm in this classroom learning primarily like american and european literature and Mm. it's uh but yeah i definitely did see those it's that focus of like we're gonna teach the children about the world and it it, yeah. it just it's a very awkward disconnect when you know we could learn a lot more about the literature of the country we're living in and yet you're mm. insisting on teaching us where the red fern grows you know yeah, a, a hypothetical global literature that is primarily anglophone english american uh yeah no absolutely oh yeah it's like i can't dislike that poster because i think that like for elementary schools, that's a perfectly that poster is a perfectly fine level of discourse. But in a musical about America and like American racism and Moby Dick, that poster is just like it is. It is practically like it's it painting over the cracks is much more than it's doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's that's so and and it just becomes this bizarre parody of itself. Yeah, and yeah. then I think it even it even does that in the thing because it goes in Egypt they call it Reek. Um and then it goes call it glory, call it God, call it a whale, call call him Ishmael, call him Pip, call him Elijah, and it's like we've now just free associated to the concept of naming things. Yes. Yep. Yes, we have. Yep. <laughs> um, um, and, and then, sorry, go on. And. We're gonna we're gonna play with the concept of naming things. We're gonna play with the famous first line, "Call me Ishmael." We're not gonna play with any of the things that are actually going on in that line. Where like <laughs> Ishmael's not this guy's like birth name. Yeah, Ishmael mm-hmm. is the name that he's telling you to call him for the duration of this narrative because he is like it. It is pseudonymous. It, yeah, it's his pseudonym. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of anonymizing. Did I say pseudonymous? I did, didn't I? Whoops. Sorry. <laughs> it happens. Uh, <laughs> anyway, like. There's probably, like, fucking reams of academic analysis out there about the line, call me Ishmael, about mm-hmm. what it's saying, about, like, the whole concept of naming. Um, and this is gonna just say, like, hey, the concept of naming, and then do nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's... it's like, these things have names, too. Yeah, and then they get to Ahab, where they're referencing his, the famous thing where Ahab is named after an evil king from the Bible, and, you know, oh, well, it's not his fault, but maybe it's, you know, it does define him, and... (laughs) That is some 
New England stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this, this section is just. I don't really have anything to say about this section. It just doesn't. I can't believe they included yeah. the unscrew your navel and your butt falls off thing without making it a joke at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know that uh, Dave Malloy knows that is what is being referenced in Pip's dialogue there. I think the idea being referenced is the idea of the unscrew your navel, your guts fall out and you die, which is like the sim- the joke missing version of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like unscrew your navel and your butt falls off is like a, it is a like child level joke that uh, is in Moby Dick, but also like it's just a stupid thing that people have continued to say up until the 21st mm-hmm. century because it's a stupid little cartoon idea. <laughs> um, and it, it <laughs> but in this, it's the symbol of doom. Yeah. Yeah. There's really, it's amazing how when we get to a slightly more coherent section, there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, there's this section about, like, I look, you look, he looks, and, you know, I go down, and you go down, you go down, and I go down. All of this is just sort of taking off bits from Pip's actual, like, madness speeches in the book. And to be fair, often these are, they're not super long in the book, and they're not always super coherent or directly meaningful you can delve in them for meaning but remember one of the themes of the book is unknowability so it's actually meant to be difficult to get something out of what pip is saying except for the moments when he's saying something very clearly and in this he's just in this that doesn't seem like a conscious effort it's just part of the effect i don't know also nobody's looking at anything here like in the novel, it's actually very obvious why Pip is saying, I look, you look, he looks, beyond the fact that, like, that's a, you know, that's, like, grammatical conjugation, so, like, he's repeating, you know, a thing you might hear mm-hmm. in school, but he's also saying that because that's in the chapter, the doubloon, where everyone is looking at the at doubloon. The doubloon. <laughs> like, to and some like, extent, he's just literally describing what has been happening, which is a bunch of people going and looking at a thing. Yeah, and Pip's reactions to the world are weird, but they are clearly reactions. He is communicating about the things he's seeing in this bizarre way so it's not just totally detached it's not fucking i am the lorax (laughs) it yeah and it's almost like i'll be honest it's almost like pulling pip out and concentrating it all here does any appreciation of his role in this story a disservice because he doesn't actually like this is he no longer exists in the story we just take a break to look at pip in a vacuum and then there's a brief period i think where a he him and ahab talk again because yeah now they're, yeah um their bad things happen to us on the ocean buddies uh, yeah, yeah i mean like the thing is that is in the book oh, they yeah. have this weird relationship and it's frankly pretty cool and uh we're going to get little slivers of that from just quoting the book later, but it's not going to be developed. It's certainly not mm-hmm. going to be developed in the reference of Pip here, because here is where we get Pip just straight up doing some prophecy in the middle of saying things that the musical doesn't seem to think yeah. has any meaning. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I mean, the the reason I think why this uh, Ahab-Pip parallelism doesn't, like, mean anything in this show is that Ahab's not mad in this show. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't have a sense of Ahab as somebody who has, like, been through a bizarre experience that changed him. Like, 
We did, I think, comment positively on the number earlier where, like, Ahab's wounding happened. Like, it was, it that was in some ways successfully dramatic. Musically, at least. Uh, yeah, but, um, but the idea of, like, crazy Ahab, which is a phrase that gets repeated over and over in the book, mm-hmm. um, has barely come up. And so it doesn't really feel like, as you say, they just feel like, oh, you, you can tell that there's a parallelism between their experiences because... Like, yeah, it's obvious, but it doesn't matter. (laughs) And And that's even more baffling because I feel like crazy Ahab fits with, like, the sort of motif they tried to do with Ahab. Ahab, Like, the where is Ahab? Like, crazy Ahab fits. And they didn't even do that. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's... uh, I will have a lot to say about this come the Pacific, the a song that is coming eventually outside of the Pip Zone, uh, when we're all Pip all the time and nothing but Pip. Um... But I do think that the idea of whether or not Ahab is, like, mad or rational or whatever is just really poorly served in this musical, even though it seems like such a slam dunk for what it seems to be trying to say about him. (sighs) And speaking of prophecy, I just want to say he says that the ship's going to sink. That also happens in the book. Mm -hmm. He uh, says that uh, he mentions how white uh, Ahab is as well as how dangerous he is. Sure. Um, And then he... uh, also specifically says, save the bird repeatedly, which is totally not from the book. That's everything about saving the bird is specifically one of the few times the musical very loudly says, and we're doing something differently from the book. So I just wanted to mark that it's getting referenced here and we'll see where it comes eventually. And frankly, I don't think the payoff will be worth it. And then I, I, there's, oh, go on. There's this, no, I was going to say, and it explains pretty, uh, it just, exp- yeah, it's like this, it's just his body left, and I was kind of interested in this when I first saw it, because what happens to Pip is kind of a cool concept. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I kind of liked it, because it was like, oh, I do get, like, the appeal here, that's kind of like, you know, his mind is still there, his, you know, just his body is there, but the soul fell down to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Like, I'm like, yeah, that's some cool writing, but I imagine more happens there. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I mean, what I would really say is that the way that this musical ends up talking about what happened to Pip in the next songs um, is, like, it's not so much that the novel tells us more about what happened to Pip, and more that the show is like, um, kind of making what happens to Pip fit more into our modern ideas of trauma and mental illness. I think that's certainly some of it. I also think that it's just trying to fit more into Pip. It's putting so much on Pip, just literally 25 to 30 minutes of Pip content, and yes. in a you know in a show that is as we've mentioned the longest fifty hours of our lives, but is also not long enough that thirty minutes is mm-hmm. not a huge chunk of it. Oh yeah, and it's it's half of the second act. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's the whole lead up to the events of the second act, which are kind of fast paced in the sense oh, that yeah. this musical can be fast paced, which is not very, but mm-hmm. they're fast paced in the sense that a lot happens and sometimes so much happens that you just blur, it blurs it together. And Pip can't actually 
as written here, take that much weight, and all of the stuff that's getting stuffed into it, the Roy G. Biv stuff, the free association, that stuff takes away from the very coherent yeah. and specific ideas about Pip's madness and experience in the mm -hmm. book, which, you know, they don't make Pip into, like, a, a protagonist. Pip is still a secondary character, but they're coherent, and they hold together, and I think that's really tragic, in that this musical wanted to make Pip a bigger deal, but the way it did was to drown the interesting things about Pip in just a pile of nonsense. Yeah. Poorly structured nonsense. Oh, and... Um, yeah. Uh, I, I think we may have said everything relevant about tambourine. Uh, I want to mention that the rhyme tambourine and limousine annoys me. It's just, yeah. it's very much out of place. And yeah. it very much feels like... You know, if you're going to have, like, two rhyming lines in this entire number, please do better. I also yeah. think it's kind of, like, pathetic how it's, like, it, it's kind of bringing in, like, okay, dance in the back of a limousine. What does that suggest? Like, that, I guess, sounds to me like some kind of, like, music video, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, like, it feels like it's trying to evoke, I guess, like, hip-hop culture a little bit, but... It's not following up on that at all. It's just putting forth the imagery of, like, an expensive car and, like, dancing and fun. Mm -hmm. And then it's not going to do anything with that. And so, yeah. like, it just left me thinking, like, wait a minute. Dancing in the back of a limousine? Like, how does that work? You can't stand up. And I'm just, like, <laughs> it, it's not a good piece of imagery. Because if it's trying to suggest any real thing, the real thing that it's evoking is, like, not being actually brought in at all um so it just leaves me thinking of like the bear image itself and the bear image doesn't make sense <sighs> there's then the question do you want to know what happened to pip repeated at us while the chorus shouts yeah and i really have to ask because i'm really curious how did the audience respond to all of this like it, this was pretty dire yeah. <laughs> like, like I, no one was, like, I feel like some of the chorus moments feel like an invitation for call and response, especially when the what, yeah. happened, what, what happened to Pip. And, and, you know, yeah, there was none of that at all. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I've seen, God. I'm like, I read a review, went back when I was like, maybe I won't re-listen to it, and I'll just see if I remember things. Um, and even the reviews are like, yeah, it's the worst part. <laughs> Wikipedia <laughs> yeah. calls it out as being, as like generally panned it's yeah it was pretty dire and also restless mm. you know like yeah i remember at least one person went up to go to the bathroom during it like, you know just a little bit of like there's nothing it's it's not just bad it's also not it's Riffing. actively frustrating and like mm. alienating mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I I believe that it's. Mm -hmm. I was just like, were people answering? Yes, I want to hear what happened no. to Pip after no. this. <laughs> not yeah. a, not no one. The people who were snapping for Fadala, not snapping for this. No more no. snaps, boy. When you've lost no. those college students. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, like, Oh, that's damning. It, it oh. was it was rough. Yeah. Speaking of breaks, I would like to briefly take one before we move yes. on to the next bit. Uh, mm -hmm. If that's all right. Let's take mm -hmm. that break. Works for me. Cool. I'm gonna jump from this whale boat. <laughs> <laughs> I I hope you come back with your soul. 
Uh, I'm pretty sure I will, but like, frankly, at this point, I think I'm getting more stimulation getting out of the whale boat and listening to this song. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, this is this is so fascinating. Like, honestly, I I'm having a blast finding out that this is so much worse than I originally thought. <laughs> God, this is making me want to write a fucking good Moby Dick musical where like, uh, Starbuck is unhappily married to Ahab and Pip is important because those are things I fucking want, right? <laughs> I, I'd, I'd watch that musical. I think it I, would actually be good. I can't believe how much this show makes me sad that those are things that it does. Yeah, it, it's... Oh, and it's, it's made so much more unfortunate by the fact that I feel like he feels like he's being so clever while doing it. Yeah. It's not. Ugh. A tragedy. Yeah. Actually, Ben and I are the only people who should ever be allowed to adapt Moby Dick is the <laughs> overall feeling I've been kind of getting over the past couple episodes of our podcast. After talking to you guys for like a few hours about this, I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> Actually, like, wait, I take it back. Orson Welles is also allowed to adapt Moby Dick. Orson Welles can adapt Moby Dick as a treat. So let's talk about Shanty. Well, I think, Clay, oh, do you want to say something? Yeah, I was saying. So tambourine is tambourine, but I'll admit I think shanty is where it actually lost like loses me. Not like it's bad the whole way through, but I get really bored. Like shanty, I was looking to try and skip forward. Tambourine, you know I could at least like phase out. <laughs> I can actually, I can actually understand that because, like, okay, what I was about to say, and I, I was about to say this may be a controversial statement, is that I think shanty works, but I think that's because. Uh, I mean, Ben and I re-listened to The Ballad of Pip uh, mm-hmm. earlier today, and we listened to just that. And mm-hmm. when you listen to just The Ballad of Pip on its own, it's like, tambourine's just mind-blowingly bad. We talked mm-hmm. about all the reasons so why tambourine is so it. bad. Yeah. Shanty is just like a... It's a reprise of I Want a Whale Stick. It's a, a cute yeah. little song that tells you about plot events. Mm-hmm. And when you're hearing a cute little song that tells you about plot events after maybe uh, 15 minutes, that's, like, fine. But I have to imagine at this point in the show, you were like, I don't want to know what's happening. Yeah. I don't care. My first comment I wanted to say is, I imagine this is straight out of the book, not lines, but in structure, where he jumps out of the boat, like, two times, and yeah. then he gets left behind. Is it three yeah. times total or two times total? No, it's two times. It's he lowers three times. Once he lowers with stub and it went fine. Second time he lowers with stub. He jumps out of the boat because of some things that go wrong, mm-hmm. and uh, and they lose the whale and everyone's mad at him. Stub says, "I'm not going to pick you up again if you jump out of the boat." And he says a racist thing as well. Let's be clear. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. He says a real racist thing, and then. Uh, Pip does jump out of the boat, so Stubb leaves him behind under the assumption that he will be picked up by the two whale boats that are behind them, because it's not unusual for a boat that's caught a whale to lose a lose a sailor. Mm-hmm. But those boats miss Pip, and so uh, Pip gets left floating on the sea for a very long time before being uh, fortuitously discovered um, after being given up for yeah. lost. So, yeah, that's just what happens in this, in this song. Yeah, I wanted to say it's... At the point where I was reaching it, and even listening to it again, it's just, you could cut it down. It's just yeah. too, the, repet, like, it's, 
it doesn't need to be three, and it kind of I'm un I was unclear on what exactly happened because it's mm. unclear on what you know. It's hard to know when it's a new whale boat. Yeah, you know it's. I don't know. I I thought it was it was cute because it was I want a whale steak, um, and and stub racist moments. Uh, <laughs> and it's like it's energetic. It's energetic. But no, it's. But. Um, and well, this is you, not like sig- sorry, sorry. Go on. I was gonna say actually, I think it probably would have been better had it not like the by this point it, the musical had long used up its word count. It could it yeah. really <laughs> it should have given to Pip, and so it's like this was not good enough for me to still care. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, um, I'm curious, uh, Danny, your thoughts on Shanty? It's a song. Like, it was definitely <laughs> an an uptick after, uh, you that. know, that. Yeah, and, but but still, I mean, I, I was at least happy to see some sort of different staging going on. Because I remember there are in, like, mm. a little boat at yeah. this point, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 yeah. it's I, the small I world boats are back. It's the small world boats. So I was like, oh, it's those. Because my brain, like, Pavloved and was like, that was nice. And so we're back <laughs> We're back there. So at least I was happy to see mm-hmm. something different happening that wasn't just this, you know, high school musical staging. But even then it was just, I mean, I knew something was going to happen to Pip. So at least narratively... I was interested, but I mean, all all I can really say is I see how this would be a high point if it was just the Ballad of Pip, like yeah, as yeah. as intended yeah, as just the yeah. Pip section. I can see why this matters, but another part of me is just angry that you know we skip from the end of Act One to like oh something happened to Pip, uh, he, and we're gonna tell you we're gonna tell you what happened to Pip, and now and. You know, I just, I, a part of me wishes we had some sort of chronology there because this skips, this skip in time makes no sense to me. Yeah, I I feel like this degree of like granular description of a particular whaling incident works in Moby Dick because it's a humongous book full of granular description of many whaling incidents. (laughs) But like in this show, it's like. I think this really is the most detail that any scene of whaling gets in terms of, like, the back-and-forth movements of everything that happens. Like, this is more detail of, like, what... uh, Where bodies are in space. This is more Mm -hmm. detail... Yes. This is more detail of of Pip moving in and out of the boat than we got of, like, what anyone was doing in, like, Stub Kills a Whale. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the actual whaling action. Yeah, that's... I think that's where it loses me there also because i want to remind everyone you can see pip falling in and out of the boat during this oh they're saying oh my god you're right they're (laughs) constantly saying then pip fell out the boat and then visibly pip falls out the boat like i can imagine enjoying that a little but like i can see how that suddenly makes it go from like you know (laughs) it's a shanty it has a joy uh bouncy tune it has stub being you know, Stubbs' awful self, and that's great. And it has, like, uh, wailing events occurring in time. But having that also playing out on stage such that you can see it 
you don't need the narration at all. Like, mm-hmm. that's and- a good point. I think that would make a huge difference for me because, again, I relatively liked it, much like with other stub yeah. content. I thought it was energetic <laughs> and bouncy and some degree of sea shanty energy, but if there's not much going on on stage except that we keep seeing Pip falling out of a fake little boat, I can imagine getting very bored with it very quickly. And I I think it's another one of those moments where I really see the failings of the musical in, you know, teaching us what to look for in Act 1 and then making us look Mm -hmm. for it in Act 2. Because Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, those whole, this is how we do whaling could have, you know, introduced either musically or visually some way of like, this is how a normal whaling goes. And then when this hits, have like break all of those rules immediately so the audience Mm -hmm. knows something has gone wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I also think that, um, I mean... Like, the weird thing is, in the novel, this is actually a very normal thing to happen. Yeah. Like, the... Ooh. Yeah, like, the, the the experience Pip goes through specifically with, like, floating getting, on the ocean and all that. Getting stranded as a castaway. That's a weird thing that doesn't happen to anybody else. However, people falling out of whale boats and, like... Happens in every whaling scene. And, like, uh, the... Ishmael complains about it. Yes. And, and <laughs> he complains about, like, this is just what we do. We get knocked out of a boat. The boat gets broken in half. We get thrown around. We think we're going to die. And everyone responds, no, 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 no. Starbucks way safer to be on a boat with than anyone else here. So you actually got the really gentle and easy version. And Ishmael's response is, I'm going to go write my will. I'm Joker-fied Ishmael now. <laughs> yeah. So, like, the thing about, like, the the, the thing about, like... This whaling incident in the novel compared to other whaling incidents is that it's not really any more chaotic and it's not really any more deadly. It's just that it so happens that rather than someone just straight up dying while whaling, which happens all the time, someone dies and then is still around. That's the weird part. The Mm. the other weird part is that it's presented as being like a very understandable error. Stubb was a jerk, but he really did mean to go back and get Pip. He really meant for Pip to get caught by the next person, but mm-hmm. uh, but the boats turned aside. An accident occurred, a very easy accident, and it was, there's also a certain degree of like, well, you, can you really blame Stubb for being so annoyed at losing a whale twice because Pip keeps jumping out of the boat? Like, there's this sense of like, it's very understandable how Pip's mind was and soul were ripped free of each other and left to wander among the dark places. And I think that that creates a very different vibe from this song, which doesn't really communicate that this is a very everyday occurrence other than the bit where Pip saw God. Yeah, like, I think the effect in the novel is that it basically makes it clear to you that bizarre near-death experiences... Are just part of whaling. Are just part of whaling. (laughs) Yeah, and... (laughs) Yeah, and there's elements of that in this song, maybe, like, we're all in the hands of God, which is the clearest reference back to we're all in the belly of the whale that I can think of in the musical. But it's wild, because this musical doesn't do anything with the is Moby Dick God thing, so... No, but this is... This is the best we get for that reference back to, like, the sermon. And, you know, I, again, I like this musically a decent amount. I wouldn't hunt it down and listen to it on my own time but you know it exists it's a it's a song i guess we can move on <laughs> it's just uh <sighs> yeah, moving so that, on though that's shanty um yeah the next song is called ocean you say song yeah uh, the next bit is called ocean <laughs> yeah i 
I literally cannot imagine yeah, being stuck was... in a theater with this. It, How? It, it, I'm. I feel bad because I'm getting like. Anno- genuinely annoyed remembering this. Like, <laughs> it's not like entertaining annoyance. It's just like I'm kind of sitting here glaring at the lyrics and going, just like it's it's, it's after for all I dislike about um, Tambourine. My annoyance at it was interesting, but by by yeah. Ocean, yeah. there's nothing. I feel like I don't have anything interesting to say other than just like they just keep talking. They just keep yeah. saying the yeah. same cycle of like, and poor little Pip in the ocean, and then his and he he was his brain went and. And I think it's bizarre also <laughs> that we get one number which is gonna be all about like kind of trying to give voice to Pip's madness, and then we have one number which is all about his actual near-death experience and what that felt like for him. Like, those feel Mm -hmm. really redundant, actually. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the bit where it's, like, super fucking prosaic. Like, I get... It really annoys me. The degree to which it's like, and then he looked at the water, and then the water was in his mouth, and he spat it out. This happened a bunch of times. They literally say, and that happened a bunch of times in the... I wanted to Mm -hmm. say song, but it's not a song. They literally say that. Like, just the degree of this is really mundane and boring and it happened over and over and that was part of what cracked Pip. I'm like, okay, see what you're doing there, that you're forcing the audience to go through Pip's experience, but have you considered that that's a bad artistic decision? Mm -hmm. This is where having metaphor and having things, like, this would be where you set up a counterpoint between the literal nature of Pip's experience and, you know, Pip's experience and Pip's experience. And importantly, you do it at the same time. You do it in one yeah. thing. You yeah. don't spread it out over five parts also, that like, you just have to watch and listen something to. I, <laughs> something I don't understand at all is, like, like, a deep part of the horror of this. And, like, I... I want to try to talk about not really what's in the novel, but just, like, the very concept of being stranded on the ocean and having no idea if anybody's going to come pick you up ever. And, in fact, having literally been told we're not going to pick you up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is genuinely horrifying. You would be able to see basically total nothingness in every direction, and you would just be waiting for your body to give out and let you drown. Yeah, and the horizon is not far for you because you're surrounded by little waves and your head's just barely above water. Mm -hmm. It's... Just a nightmare scenario that, as far as I can tell, like, I have to ask, is Pip literally just lying on the stage at this point? Please? Give Not me something. Even. I, I think he's I, standing? He's standing. Like, I remember him just being there and not even doing anything as interesting as lying down. Yeah, because, like, that's the thing. A huge part of the horror of this experience, I think, is visual. Is that all you can see is, like, the sky and the ocean, and you, uh, like, literally nothing is visible. Yeah, the the novel itself actually has this line about Pip sort of feeling this kinship with the sun, the only other thing he can see, and a castaway like himself, but so much higher and brighter. There's all these little interesting stylistic things going on. But the, the, the thing is that you can't make this happen visually, Mm -hmm. at, at least... 
I don't know. Maybe there is something. I don't know that much about playstaging. Maybe you could do something to give the impression of a person being able to see basically nothing but the sky and the ocean and having those things feel like, like total, total and Mm -hmm. massive. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like they did anything to make that happen visually. And I guess I don't totally understand how you could on a stage. I I can imagine it. I think this is where you use isolation. This is where a tight spotlight is on Pip Mm. and you have him choking and struggling to say these things. And Pip should say all these things because I would care if Pip said I'm choking on water. Yeah, I don't that, care about yeah. Father Mapple saying it. That's yeah, a thing why? This... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Why is so much of this section narrated by people who are not Pip? Yeah, like, yeah, that, that, that was exactly what I was going to say. I mean, for something that's trying to give a voice to Pip, Pip does surprisingly little. Like, he's surprisingly mm-hmm. one of the smallest parts of the Pip section. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, just giving literally Pip's lines in Father Mapple's mouth. Just weird. Yeah, uh. it's... But yeah, it, I think... I, I'm honestly confident you could do something really interesting with this on stage. Yeah. This I... is the sort of thing that, like... I know that, like, when I did more theater, I would have, like, eaten up. Because it's mm. like, this is impossible to represent on stage. How do you represent it on stage? Yeah. It's like, I... like one of my favorite scripts has this, one of my favorite plays has the um, stage direction, has two stage directions. One is the um, one character dies, and it says the actor dies. Amazing. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's, and it's very supposed to be the impossibility. It's like, no... They get violently murdered. The actor should be violently murdered. And it's like, what do you do there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, then, yeah. and it's stuff like that that this is, I think, akin to. It's how do you show someone in a position that isn't on stage and with this shrinking perspective that you can't capture on stage? And I think you can, but this doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm reminded very strongly of... Uh, uh, not Moby Dick and Musical Reckoning, but Moby Dick rehearsed Orson Welles's theatrical version because, again, a large... He has this section where the director talks about, you know, like in uh, Henry V, where you're asked to bring in with your mind these armies onto the stage. We'll have to ask the audience to do more work mm-hmm. to make Moby Dick work. You can't have the whale. The, the thing the book is named after is going to be invisible, and you still have yeah. to make that work. And so, yeah, I think that there's fascinating questions of how to do a minimalist or even just any theatrical Moby Dick, period. This is certainly not a minimalist production we're talking about right now. And, yeah, it's that's such a fascinating question, and I I keep being like, so did they do this? Where I'm like, I'm trying to shrink my horizons to the kind of things they would do in this, and they still don't do them. Yeah. They don't even do them. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I do want to briefly, before getting the hell out of this section, reference two quotations from the book that are used so weirdly in this section, because they're both quotations from Ahab and Ahab's experience. There's first the phrase, the sea tore his soul and body until they bled into each other. The line in the book is talking about Ahab 
his leg torn off by Moby Dick, lying mm-hmm. in a cabin, being sailing back around the world to Nantucket as his torn body and torn soul bled into one another. And that's like the sign of his madness. His personality mm-hmm. has bled into his wound. His trauma has completely overtaken him. And that works for Ahab because the physical wounding of his body is so important. But for Pip, it is precisely the fact that his physical body isn't wounded, that is so weird and half-horrible and strange and terrible, Mm -hmm. is the fact that Pip is fucking not physically injured, but his soul is gone. That's weird. That's... ah, Sorry, I'm I'm getting carried away, but it's just... This line is sort of the defining line about understanding Ahab's missing leg and his trauma. There's a lot more in the book about that. And this musical doesn't have it on Ahab. They have it on Pip, who didn't go through the same thing, even though they might be analogized or able to understand each other's trauma. And just using that line for Pip instead of Ahab is just weird, and it's frankly bad. I don't like it. I think it's a bad... It's a bad draw, and it's... It's so significant in this project of making Pip, like, the most visible and important character thematically, but doing it in the most ham-handed and poorly thought-out way, where it's literally, let's take Ahab, the generally accepted central figure of this narrative, let's take a line about his trauma and move it on to Pip, and that will make Pip a more central character in this drama. That's not how language works. That's not how writing works. (sighs) And... There's this thing about God was already there that I just don't think has any real meaning. It's just referencing the treadle on the loom thing. And then you get the last bit where Ishmael talks and says, The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but carried the infinite of his soul down to wondrous depths, where he saw the joyous, heartless, ever-juvenile eternities. Pip saw through the mask, and therefore his shipmates called him mad. Now, Genius has happily given us the um, actual quotation from which most of this is drawn, but nowhere does the phrase mask appear. Nowhere does Pip see through the mask. He sees God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it, and therefore his shipmates called him mad. He saw God and said he saw God, and therefore people called him crazy. Understandable. Makes sense. He saw through the mask implies that Pip is now truth-telling. He has, he's saying truth to power. Mm-hmm. He's seen the reality of the situation. He's going to be our prophetic figure in a very straightforward and boring way for the rest of the story, and he's referencing the pasteboard masks line that has already been botched in this musical. Mm-hmm. I just think this is like the worst example of Malloy grabbing sections from Moby Dick and shuffling them, but doing a very bad job of it. In the musical. Yeah. 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 (sighs) Alright, we're almost done, everyone. We're so close to being fucking done with the Ballad of Pip. The good (laughs) thing is that five coda is literally one page. Like, one... I don't need to scroll to see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's It's so short. It's it's just that Pip returns to the Pequod, and Pip is gone, and Ahab decides that he's gonna hold hands with him now yeah yeah yeah. so i'm curious what you made of this from just the musical version i I keep asking that but i'm always interested i was very confused briefly (laughs) but then i feel like i got it like you know he's basically what i got from it was okay pip's gone sea mad and ahab sea mad and now like they can go talk shop they they can bond over it you know you're basically right (laughs) like and 
it does get that across, I think, but also after half an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's kind of, it's <laughs> weird that it, you know, creates a sense of relief because it's, I mean, I, on mm-hmm. one hand, and this is going to read so much into it that definitely was not intended, but like you understand, I guess, Ahab's relief of like someone else gets it now. Yes. Someone gets this madness yeah. I've got inside of me. But the only relief I felt was like, oh my God, I think it's over. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, like, it, the, the slightest credit you could maybe give it is like, oh my god, it's finally over, might be a feeling that Pip had when he was finally taken but, back up onto a whale boat. But it but... hasn't stopped for Pip. That's the whole point. Pip's mm-hmm. soul went. Yeah, no, I don't mean that as, like, actually a good thing. I'm just saying, I guess. Um, but yeah. And, like, this bond between Ahab and Pip in the novel, it's there, it's weird. I would be interested in a show that explores it, because, strangely, mm-hmm. I would say... I mean, I'm not going to say the novel doesn't do much with it, but I think the novel kind of presents it, and it presents the basic, like, explanation for it, which is, yeah, that, like, Ahab and Pip do both have this experience of being, like, sea-mad, and it creates a connection between them that, like, Ahab sees and, like, cares about. Um, But the, like, but, like, what does that do for Ahab? Why is this something that Ahab is thinking about? Um... Like, and even, I think, the contours of... The thing that Ahab says is that, at one point, is that Pip's madness is too curing of his own. And I believe Flask describes them as one mad with strength, the other mad with weakness. So there's this dynamic between the two characters mm-hmm. in which Ahab is, like, strong and powerful and commanding, and Pip is the opposite of all those things. But Ahab finds in Pip some kind of amelioration of his own misery, and he, in fact, wants to make Pip feel better about Pip's own madness and misery. And the there's a line that he says, which is, um, Lo, ye believers in God's all goodness, and in man all ill. Lo, you see, the omniscient gods oblivious of suffering man, and man, though idiotic and knowing not what he does, yet full of the sweet things of love and gratitude. So, when Pip is like, despite the fact that Pip has been metaphysically destroyed, Pip still, like, reaches out for Ahab and tries to comfort him in his misery, and Ahab is incredibly moved, because this is not something literally anyone has really done. And it's certainly not something that, like, he has felt, like, responded to by anyone else. And there's ways to read it. It's a really interesting relationship. And there is certainly a certain degree of, oh, this, the least of them, and this, the mightiest of them, have this in common. But there's this humanism to it of, like, Pip, as humanity, even the most destroyed, degraded specimen of humanity, he is still meaningfully valuable, and Ahab still sort of finds something Mm. beautiful in him. And that's hugely sort of characterizing for Ahab's bringing of all the world's grievances before God. Ahab's anger at Moby Dick becomes this more conceptual thing as well, although there's constantly the question of, well, is it this conceptual thing purely because he's been driven mad by anguish and pain and is finding justifications for it? So, you know, it's a big novel. There's a lot going on, very little of which really appears here. It's just doing the necessary beats to have these characters have the relationship they need to have for later scenes. Yeah, like, the thing that's bizarre to me about it is that I really feel like there is a lot about the, like, Pip-Ahab connection that is confusing or unspoken, like something that I don't think is something that I don't think the novel makes clear. And I I think it's purposeful that it doesn't make this clear 
is, okay, Ahab feels this pull towards Pip because he, like, desires companionship in his madness, and, and he sees Pip as this sort of, like, sweet expression of the things that are good about humanity. But, like, why does Pip cleave to Ahab? Why does Pip seem to want to be around Ahab a lot after this? Um, and... I could come up with some explanations for that. If I were to write a musical in which I made Pip an extremely major mm-hmm. character, I would explore that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, another fun fact. Uh, that line, get the blacksmith, have him rivet our hands together, I believe that is Pip who originally asks for their hands to be welded together. So it's Pip saying, please let us be stuck together. And Ahab who says, yes, I will keep you by me unless by doing so I'll drag you to worse horrors than you've already seen, um, which will come up later. But in this, it's Ahab who says, let us rivet them together. So there's very little actual Pip asking Mm -hmm. for or pursuing this companionship. And I think that's because Pip is supposed to be moral and the voice of morality and the voice of like, he's the one who sees what's really going on. And therefore he can't like Ahab. He can't be positive about Ahab because Ahab's the villain. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, for a play that was born out of Pip, it cares very little about giving Pip things to do. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And in it's exchange of that, and to the point where it removes lines from him because it doesn't work with like. So, you okay? This is the grand unifying Pip theory. Hmm? What Malloy does with Pip is just a grander. Phil is like all-consuming version of laundering ideas. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think you also have to see it in the context of Hamilton. Like, yeah, it's also the Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, like there's there's a very strong sense for me that Malloy want did a thing about Pip because he was reacting to this like idea of Hamilton, this idea of sort of racially reorganizing this founding father's story into a more modern american like uh liberal patriotism version and Mm -hmm. sure this is coming three years into trump so it's a very in the end a very different thing but the impetus in like 2014 to making a pip musical a 30 minute pip musical i can't imagine that wasn't chasing hamilton's shadow in a very deep way for sure absolutely (sighs) <sighs> similarly speaking of that there's this line oh thou big black or white god aloft in the darkness up oh, there yeah. have mercy yeah. on this white or black boy left behind on the sea down here let's just that comes out in like the party after the quarter deck when there's a storm and pip specifically says oh thou big white god have mercy on this little black boy the whiteness of god is important to the book because the whale is white because whiteness is Mm -hmm. scary because there's this complex symbolic coloration thing that specifically doesn't work if you say black or white god because you're trying to do the what if god were a black woman cliche (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, it's just so totally empty, especially the part where he says white or black boy. Like, is Pip racially ambiguous now? Where did that come from? Uh, yeah, like, like what? I was confused by that. That, like, you I, be. I wanted to bring it up, but I didn't really, it, I almost didn't more out of just like, you know, I don't know what, I have nothing to say with it other than. Yeah, just like, no, oh, it's, it's a total <laughs> null. It's, it's not, 
It doesn't contain an idea we can respond to the way, like, a bosom friend does. It's Mm -hmm. just trying, it's just gesturing at these ideas in a way that's really hollow. And it's not even, like, I can imagine a version of this that's trying to, that thinks that it's trying to hold up a hollow image of, like, multiracial multiculturalism, of liberalism that's like, isn't this actually not very, like, not really doing much? But no, I don't think that's it at all, because if it were doing that, you'd think it would at any point engage with the way it's doing that. I think it's doing it unironically. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> all right, I... I do think that means we are done with fucking Pip yeah. section. Yeah, I think, I think we're free from this for today. <laughs> Are you saying you don't think we can record more? I do yeah. not think we can record more today. That's, that's I have very some, fair. I have some stout bread to bake. Oh, nice. 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 Oh, I thank you both so much. Hey, this is Mark from another time, uh, because we ended up, due to how things worked out, we ended up recording just one plug to put across all four uh, Moby Dick and Musical Reckoning episodes. So... Um, I have Clay and Danny with me here right now. Um, Danny, do you have anything uh, that you would like to plug? Oh my god, I do have things I'd like to plug. Uh, so I guess most of the stuff that I do is uh, audio dramas, uh, mostly with Clay, kind of exclusively with Clay. <laughs> so um, we, um, you can kind of follow us and see sort of what we're doing in that sphere at Wasteland Radio Productions on Instagram. There's nothing, uh, there's not a lot of stuff there yet, but it does link to our uh, sort of completed audio drama project called The Last Show at Last Show Podcast on Instagram. And it's a funky audio drama about a college radio show that survives the end of the world. And, you know, there's a fun cult of English majors and also a terrifying robot god. A lot of very exciting times. Uh, we, we made it with our friends. It was our first audio drama. Really fun. I, I recommend you guys uh, check it out if you like, you know post-apocalypses and you know light elements of cosmic horror with some comedy in between um it was a very fun time and um if you want to sort of our most recent project or the one that we're currently developing is called uh, another man's poison with carver levine uh and i guess it's food horror clay <laughs> i don't know how you 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 have like this vision for how do you want to define it to to people to listeners Another Man's Poison with Carver Levine is a culinary horror podcast where you follow food journalist Carver Levine and his trusty producer. (laughs) His trusty producer. Travel across the nation and eat at the United States' most dangerous restaurants. Yeah. And it's got, like, you know, it, it. goes from like dangerous to weird to almost fantastical it's got it's kind of all over that spectrum we're very excited for it we haven't really done anything like this uh so as soon as we start you know publishing more things about it you will see it at wasteland radio productions on instagram so please follow us so you can kind of follow along with uh, our progress with that if you want to follow me personally i am on twitter at berserker dan dan and um that's a B E R S E K E R D A N D A N, and Wait, yeah, is that, I, is that mm, berserker with no second R S E K? Uh, 
No, that is with another R. I can't spell. I can't look at things and spell them. It's okay. It's spelled best. berserker like the word berserker. Berserker Google like berserker. the word. Google that word and you'll be able to find me on Twitter. <laughs> uh, you also found out that I can't spell. So now that's out in the world. Uh, but you can follow me there. And uh, I I just do stuff on Twitter, I guess. But, but uh, Oh, and if you, I also compose the music for the last show. So if you want to kind of look at my composing endeavors for that, you can see my work at soundcloud.com slash lastshowpodcast. And uh, yeah, you can just listen to the stuff I make there. Awesome. Um, and uh, Clay, did you have anything specific that you also wanted to mention? You can find me on Twitter at Kluby, C-L-O-O-B-Y, X-I-X, Kluby19, but with Roman numerals at twitter.com there is where i announce most of my projects and a lot of my projects are also found because i write a lot of tabletop role-playing game supplements and games can be found at kluby.itch.io um pick up chief among them i have i wrote a supplement for j dragon's wander home about the ocean and big mythopoetic monsters on the ocean which i illustrated yes I couldn't think of anyone who might listen to our Moby Dick podcast who might be interested in that. <laughs> um, or in culinary horror, honestly. God, there's a lot of culinary horror in Moby Dick. Anyway. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, I really hope uh, our listeners will go uh, check both of your stuff out um, because I think it's really cool. And uh, like I was just saying, I think there might be some overlaps in interest. Uh, and you can actually also find um, my other podcast, um, Ars Arcanum, which is a podcast about uh, Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere novels, um, and also, uh, to some extent, just about science fiction and fantasy and, and just novels, books in general. Um, you can find that on the Export Audio uh, Podcast Network. Um, you can find that podcast specifically at uh, ars-arcanum, A-R-S-A-N-U-M dot, uh, what is it, pinecast.co, I think that's correct. Um, but probably actually an easier way to find uh, everything on the Export Audio Network is if you go to their Patreon, which you can find at exportaud.io. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at charasnablunt. Um so uh, thank you two both so much again for being on these episodes and uh, hope uh, everyone checks their stuff out. Are you ready for the silly little sign off? Uh, Wait, I'm scrolling yes. to it. I'm scrolling to it. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. Uh, actually, do we want to ask if one of our guests wants to call the sign off? Yeah, that's true. Do one of you want to be the one who says uh, what tune is it you pull to, man? Uh, I can do it. Sure. Sure. All right. What tune is it you pull to, men? A A dead dead whale whale or a a stove stove boat. boat. (laughs) Fine, I'll fix it in editing. Thank you both so much. Thank you guys so much.